I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom Going Quick Bionic. And that's because we have an incredibly prominent uh, evangelical leader, national mm-hmm. leader, who has something to say this week, and mm-hmm. we have very little time. Mm-hmm. We have with us uh, Professor David Gushy, who is the professor of Christian ethics at Mercer University, and also the editor of a book called Religious Faith, Torture, and Our National Soul. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk this week about torture, rendition, and the war on terror, crisis for the American church. And we need to cut right to it. We don't Let's have go. much time, go and we'll quick. be back to wrap it up here at Future Quick. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I am Tom. Uh, would like to be known for all the things that Jesus was good at, uh, but unfortunately I get labeled by all the things that his followers don't do so well sometimes. Bionic. That's kind of a loaded middle that name. That is a lo- well, longer middle name for yeah. you this week, and uh, had some backshadowing of some, uh, some off-mic comments here. But we are so glad to have uh, another new friend with us here, mm-hmm. a very distinguished gentleman that's going to be talking about yet another difficult, perplexing topic for American Christians today. We have uh, Dr. David P. Gushy, who is the professor of Christian ethics at Mercer University and the editor of a book called Religious Faith, Torture, and Our National Soul. And we're going to be talking this week about torture, rendition, and the war on terror, a crisis for the American church, mm-hmm. uh, a topic we have certainly touched on a number of times on our show, but we have someone who really is in ground zero, so to speak, of this whole issue. And, I, and Dr. Gushy, I just want to thank you so much for making time in your ridiculously busy schedule to share your wisdom and findings with our Futurian listeners here at Future Quake. Hey, well, thanks for having me on your show. I'm glad to spend this time with you. Well, uh, let, let me share a few words about your background and credentials with our audience now, just for the sake of time. And please correct me if I err in any of them or if I omit any. Uh, you were educated at William & Mary, uh, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, I presume in Louisville, my hometown, mm-hmm. uh, and Union Theological Seminary, uh, receiving a doctorate in Christian ethics. And you're currently a professor of Christian ethics at Mercer University in Atlanta, uh, serve as head of the Mercer Center of Theology and Public Life and president of Evangelicals for Human Rights. Uh, you're a weekly columnist for the Associated Baptist Press and have authored at least 11 books as well as 75 or more essays, book chapters, articles, and reviews. Uh, um, to begin, That's pretty close. Uh, this, I have, um, uh, that needs to be updated just a hair. Um, okay. We have we have merged uh, Evangelicals for Human Rights into a broader group called the New Evangelical Partnership for the Common Good, and um, so, but the Evangelicals for Human Rights uh, work is really pretty much what we're going to be talking about tonight. Um, okay. Yeah. So that's pretty much right, and I appreciate you uh, digging around. Uh, basically, I'm a I'm somebody who loves Jesus and has been trying to follow him since I was 16 years old, and mm-hmm. he's led me on a journey into ministry and and the academic side of that but i'm just Mm -hmm. really mainly trying to be a follower of christ Mm -hmm. 
Well, we have agents, future oh, quake agents, uh, established throughout the country, so that's how we're able to get your M.O. Uh, we, we establish, a lot of people are willing to squeal on you. Yeah. But, right. uh, one thing that you have in common with any of our guests is the loving Jesus part. That's the one thing that we find a recurring theme of the people we have here. To begin our discussions, can you please share with us what motivates you, uh, to pursue the overall topic of Christian ethics? which I doubt many Christians could even define very well, uh, in your theological career so far, and, and what you hope to accomplish ultimately through your efforts in that area. Well, I discovered uh, Christian ethics as a discipline when I was in seminary uh, at Southern. Uh, everybody had to take an introduction to Christian ethics class, and the way it was taught there uh, was imprinted on me, that basically what you do in Christian ethics is you try to figure out the implications of the Christian faith for how we live our life uh, personally, uh, what we do uh, in terms of the, the church, the church's life and moral witness, and then uh, what the implications of Christian faith would be for society and the world. That's the kind of more social ethics. Of course, that raises all kinds of complicated questions related to how Christian principles apply in a secular society and all of that, but that's that's all the kind of work that Christian, you know, ethics is about. So there's probably about 2,000 people in the United States and more around the world who would say that what they do is Christian ethics. Uh, they teach and minister and work in all various kinds of venues. And uh, we're, we're basically, theologians deal with the doctrines of the church and biblical scholars deal with the, the scriptural uh, work and Church historians deal with church history, and ethicists deal with the moral witness of the church. You know, I'm really shocked that there's really much to do for Christian ethicists in the 21st century. I, I would think you'd be more like really, uh, Yeah, there's very little going on, actually, so I, mean, I just kind of sit around most of the time. Yeah. I think you'd be more like Maytag repairman, you know? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, since, since, you know, so many issues are so clear-cut and uh, need so little forward thinking uh, right now. Uh, right. What, ha- what have Christian ethicists accomplished in America, in society, over history? Can you give us some examples? And what are some basic common principles of how their community addresses societal issues? Well, I don't know that Christian ethics is a community. Uh, it's, it's an academic discipline that... Uh, I'd say officially has been a discipline you know, for about 100 years, um, maybe a little bit longer. Of course, the work of trying to help Christian people think about how do we live this life, what does it mean to be a follower of Christ, what are the implications of, of claiming Christ as our Lord, um, that, is, that goes back to the history of the church and all the way to the beginning. Um, you know, as, a, as an academic discipline, uh, Christian ethics, I think, serves the church in helping uh, church leaders and lay people to think a little more sharply about how we should live and what we should say in public, you might say, and about ethical issues. And, you know, every denomination really has its people who've been trained in ethics and, and help uh, work on these issues, Catholics, Methodists, Presbyterians, Southern Baptists, everybody. Um, I would say, uh, I mean, some of the most famous People who have done Christian ethics have ranged from somebody like Reinhold Niebuhr in the 1930s, mm-hmm. 40s, 50s, you know, mm-hmm. um, who uh, had a very interesting career dealing with issues ranging from economic injustice and uh, World War II, the Cold War, and um, so on. Um, uh, Martin Luther King was trained in Christian ethics and uh, theology. 
Pope John Paul II, actually, his formal academic training was in ethics. And you could see it in a lot of the sophisticated work that he did on a wide range of issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was probably the most highly placed ethicist in in uh, our history. I mean, getting to be the Pope and all that's pretty pretty nice gig, you know, for an ethicist. Um, you know, so uh, Christian ethicists have helped, uh, have served on government commissions related to various issues, have served on tons and tons of religious bodies and commissions working on various kinds of issues. I mean, you have Christian ethicists who will serve on national or international bioethics commissions to deal with issues like stem cell research or right. human experimentation. A lot of bioethics these days as, as the technology mm-hmm. develops. So wherever there is a demanding moral issue, especially one uh, that is uh, difficult to figure out what we're supposed to do, maybe where we don't have a long history of dealing with that issue because it's new, then a lot of times the ethicists are, are involved. But but I would say the less glamorous work of Christian ethics is when, you know, we talk with regular everyday Christians like about how, how much money we should make and how we should spend it and how much we should save and give away and where, or uh, sexual morality, what do we do about marriage and family in this in this context, just kind of the daily work of, forming Christian disciples who will live a faithful Christian life. Now, I, I would surmise that there is a there's a combination of the more abstract, where you look at just the fundamental parts of what it is to live and the basic issues that we've always had through society in developing an, an ethic uh, from that, from, from Scripture or whatever you're based on. And then there are the ethics that are based upon current events, like you mentioned bioethics and things like this. That there's right. sort of the timeless issues that have to be addressed and built over millennia uh, in building of knowledge. But then we get curveballs, like, for example, transhumanism. I don't know if, right. if you and your colleagues look at that much. What's, yeah. What's, yeah. yeah, Augustine wrote at length about that, actually. Yeah, but he did. <laughs> yeah, the whole uh, bionic man thing. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, Oscar uh, Goldman, I know, was a big con- <laughs> contributor to that. So, yes, uh, in fact, I would say that one way, one way to say it is you've got these perennial issues that just go with being human. And uh, the church, along with every other human community, has had to deal with that. How do we deal with sex? How do we deal with power or with money or with uh, violence? And then you've got issues that are distinctive uh, to Christians because of the teachings of Christ uh, that, that require us to pay attention if we're going to be faithful to his teachings. So he teaches us about economic simplicity or turning the other cheek and what does that mean and so you've got to deal with with his specific teachings and then you have the new issues that come along often generated by technological and scientific advances and then you're stretched to figure out whether the resources of the Christian tradition have anything to say to those issues and if so what would they have to say and so and the other thing I would say is even perennial issues uh, evolve as society evolves what we say about marriage and family, in one sense, hopefully doesn't change. In another sense, in a society like ours where more and more people don't bother to get married or they get married multiple times or or, or uh, you have this kind of dramatic change or they're getting married later, um, then, then the context in which we deal with these issues changes. Mm-hmm. And so part of what ethicists do is to try to, to, to say something relevant to the current context, but also faithful to the scripture and to the tradition of the church. 
Well, if uh, the Christian ethicists have any kind of conventions like the Shriners do, uh, I'd do like. Do they have funny hats? Well, I'd like. We do. We wear the funny hats. <laughs> I'd like. <And> we, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd like for you to recommend that uh, Brother Tom and I get some kind of honorary reward from the Christian ethicists because you really you described the typical uh, evolution of the Future Quake show because those are the kind of issues that we handle virtually one week after the next. Although we didn't know that's what we were doing. Uh, you are honorary ethicist. I hereby dub you an honorary uh, Christian ethicist. Wow, that's, that's sweet. That's, I don't know if that Pope has anything over you, if you have that kind of ability. Uh, let, let's jump into the meat and potatoes here yeah. uh, of our discussion. The bulk of our discussion today will focus on a recent publication for which you served as an editor entitled Religious Faith, Torture, and Our National Soul, which focused on perspectives or uh, facets of the topic as addressed by a number of individuals of various expressions of religious faith. What did you hope to accomplish with this particular effort, and what ramifications have been observed from it since then? Um, well, I got involved in, actually rather involuntarily, in dealing with the issue of how the U.S. was treating people in Iraq and Afghanistan and uh, Guantanamo and so on when uh, Christianity Day magazine contacted me in 2005 and asked me to write what became a cover story on uh, the issue of detainee abuse. I think what triggered it was in part the Abu Ghraib scandal, um, the pictures that came out of Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq, and in part they were getting um, lots of inquiries from people, including some people in the military, related to, wow, uh, there's some stuff happening in counterterrorism policy that seems a little morally questionable. How should Christians think about it? So I began dealing with the issue in 2006, late 2005, 2006, ended up president of, a, of an organization that dealt with this issue almost exclusively. And uh, the, this book is kind of the culmination of all of that. Um, it came out of a conference that I organized and hosted uh, in Atlanta in 2008. And this is kind of a collect, collected papers from that conference. I mean, what am I hoping for? What I was hoping for, it was that the book would be a pretty authoritative collection of uh, kind of various angles of vision on on this uh, this issue. I think the way we organized it was looking back, what do we know about what has happened, and then looking ahead, what would we like to see happen uh, from from here on, and what lessons can we learn? And uh, I mean, I think the the shape of this issue has changed a lot since we held our conference, and and since the, the the book was in was in uh, you know the, the development process, I mean what we fundamentally wanted to do was to was to help contribute to a consensus that the United States, no matter what we're dealing with, should never sink to the level of brutality uh, and uh, and what I think can only be described as torture, certainly abuse, and uh, that we should never do that again. That we did it and we shouldn't do it again. And we can, and we can, maybe we can agree on that. And the book was supposed to contribute to the mm -hmm. formation of that consensus. Have you seen anything, um, any sparks that have come out of that, or new initiatives, or activity, or what, what, well, what would you hope in the future beyond that to come? I mean, the issue changed a lot when Barack Obama was elected president. I mean, he was listening uh, to a lot of people who held pretty similar views to ours, and and uh, he said. In fact, you could find me on YouTube asking a question at a candidate forum in 2008. As nervous as I could possibly be that night, uh, it was a compassion forum at Messiah College. 
And I asked the candidate, Obama, at that time, basically, what is your posture on torture? And he said, we must never torture, and if I'm elected president, we won't torture. And and, and I'm convinced that I mean, he did executive several executive orders right when he became president saying that we were not going to torture, and I believe that that's the case. So in a sense, the issue has changed. I do think there are a number of other issues that I'm not quite as up on related to all the details of you know, rendition policy and all of that I could tell you a little bit about. But right. I think I think that the active practice of torture by the United States government in the name of national security has probably stopped. But the argument over whether it was legitimate and whether we would be justified in doing it again has not stopped. It's mm-hmm. kind of gone quiet for a while. We're arguing about other things right now. Mm-hmm. But But that issue... There is no moral consensus on that issue. I'm aware of that. But you know how politicians usually can answer and tell you they're not going to do something like torture is they change the terminology. Is they say, well, this doesn't mean torture anymore uh, right. while they proceed. And I don't know in this case whether that's true or not, but I'm just saying that's normally how they do it is they'll get some lawyers together and, and change what's said. Or, like rendition you brought up, they hand people over to third parties and they say our hands are clean. Right. Uh, I, I know you know a lot about that too. That that uh, even even the CIA will say, look, we're not doing our torture. We just hand them over to these nice Jordanian people, and we right. sure they'll they'll be very kind to them. So right. I, I I wish I could be so positive minded to think that it's there. I don't mean to be such a cynic as to say we'll never make progress in anything like this. Uh, but uh, you know I I fear that sometimes we have more of the same. You know there was a lot of thought that there'd be a quick uh, conclusion to some of these wars. Yeah. Uh, with a change of, of uh, regime, and as we as we found out that that hasn't happened so easily as yet either, there seems to be an incredible inertia. Absolutely, absolutely. On on, I mean, the point you made is is so good. In fact, in all, like to be completely precise, you would still have many um, defenders of the of the Bush administration saying they never did torture. Uh, and one reason you could possibly make that argument is because the lawyers did get to work um, in the Justice Department and in the Pentagon sometimes redefining what was permitted and what wasn't and saying what we are doing is permissible and it is not torture. Uh, and so I remember during the heat of the of the battles over this, I, I got involved in many fruitless arguments with people over what, what we were going to call this. But when, when you actually then kind of got better information about the precise things that were being done and the combinations of things. Some A really powerful Red Cross report that had some documentation, some Pentagon Pentagon reports after the fact that had good documentation. Pentagon itself said we did, we did uh, fall into torture in some cases. The Red Cross called it torture. So, I mean, uh, if the Pentagon called it torture, it probably was torture. And the Red Cross, you know, that's what, one of their jobs in the world is to monitor this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I think we slipped into it. Uh, in, in one sense, partly by uh, euphemism and redefinition and trying trying to uh, to feel good about what we were doing. And I don't think, I think a lot of that, those excesses have been stopped, mm-hmm. but, but they haven't been stopped by law. They've been stopped by executive order. Mm-hmm. And by, by uh, convenience or necessity or, or whatever happens to be the circumstance at the time. Um, y- y- you know, it's funny... Uh, People will do just about anything until they decide it's not in their interest to do anything. So, you know, if they say that they're not doing something like torturing or a number of other things, we could list now 
uh, it's most likely because for some reason it's not in their interest to do it right now. But they always retain that right uh, to do whatever they can. And I think that's why building a moral bulwark in society uh, and then an expectation from the grassroots people back up to these leaders saying we won't tolerate this kind of thing, I think is the only way to protect in the future because I'm sure we haven't seen the last of this. When Judge Napolitano was on our show and also uh, Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, who was the uh, yeah. chief of staff, he was on our show, uh, and both of them explained that the FBI and others had come down there and had, and had discovered this was going on, as well as the military, that the CIA uh, had been in the first year or two uh, really, really doing this very heavily, uh, and they had actually gotten after them to, to try to back off from what they were doing. So I'm sure there's been some diminishment. But yet, I'm certain that there are still people languishing in unknown prisons, many of whom are innocent from the data that, that we've come across, um, without any kind of hope. And as long as there's one of them like that, then we have a job to do. Well, I'm glad you look at it that way. I do, I do too. I mean, I understand the national security arguments and the various kinds of legal arguments one can make, but I mean, 9-11 now was nine years ago, and we have had people in Guantanamo that we know about documented for, you know, eight years, um, no charges, no, no, no prospect of trial. Um, you know, I'm concerned about how much of that do we allow and how long do we allow it? Uh, through this, through this whole, um, fight over these, these years, I have come to deeply appreciate um, our constitutional protections and also to deeply appreciate how vulnerable they are. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, 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 it is the best thing about our country in many ways that our founders uh, created such a very carefully balanced system with all of its checks and balances and certain kinds of uh, things you cannot do to people and things you and liberties you must protect for people and uh, those are always vulnerable to fear and uh, hysteria and and compromise and so I'm pretty pretty doggone uncompromising about fundamental constitutional principles such as the the right to know what the charges are against you and the right to a, a, tr- a timely trial with a legitimate counsel and and the right not to be abused cruel and unusual punishment and to say, hey, you know, that doesn't really apply to these people because they're terrorists. Well, they're suspected terrorists. I mean, we know that some of the people who have had some of the stuff done to them, they hadn't really done anything. And 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 they were suspected. We, we abused them in the context of them being suspects, and now we can't try them because we abused them so badly. Right. You know, so I really am. How about if we say I'm a fundamentalist about constitutional protections? <laughs> yeah. I, I, want, I want to see them... Um, uh, upheld one one background uh, that I think is relevant. My I cut my teeth as a scholar on a dissertation on the Nazi era and the Holocaust. Right, and I wanted mm-hmm. to ask you a question about that too, because yeah, and, and so I mean one of the things about that is yeah, the the, the democracy that Hitler uh, inherited was pretty weak, but he destroyed it in three months, and and he destroyed it using the tools of democracy. So he used democracy to destroy democracy so that within three or I guess you could say six, depending on your count, your count he, democracy was dead in six months. That's how vulnerable it is. We can't rest on our laurels then by just saying we have good laws on our books. 
and sleep tight and, and watch. You know, you you mentioned the the real danger to the the wonderful protections of constitutional law uh, is fear and hysteria yeah. that provides the grounds. Isn't the fear and hysteria one thing that people of Christ, the body of Christ in a country, can do to help remedy to 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 give back civilly to the rest of their country is to be able to address that kind of stuff. I would think that that ought to be one of the great contributions we can make because we all know from a thousand different Bible verses that we are not to be living in fear, uh, that we have a calm and a peace uh, about, about you know, our, our ultimate security, our, our relationship with Christ uh, grounds us in a way that doesn't ground other people. Um, I would think that <laughs> that is some good ethics there um, that... Mm-hmm. That we can, one of the things we can contribute to the society is we are not driven by the fears and hysterias of the moment. Mm-hmm. We're more, we're better grounded than that. And, and in fact, you related to that in your PhD work about the response of the church in Europe to the rise of persecution, which led to the Holocaust. Yeah. Um, can, can you share us from the data that you collected some kind of rough estimate of the percentages of the Christian community in Europe? that actually got involved in protecting the Jews once they were aware of the danger? Uh, well under 1%. Hmm. Under 1% took an active role to try to protect the, their well-being. If it was one half of 1%, I'd be surprised. Okay. The uh, By the time the Holocaust was unleashed, uh, you know, the systematic effort to destroy every single Jewish or person classified as Jewish throughout the areas that the Nazis controlled, um, they unleashed the full, all the weapons of state power to find and kill these people, and they they made a terribly frightening environment for anybody who would resist them. So, you know, most people are not terribly courageous, and I don't know what any of us would have done. It was terribly frightening, and, and a fair number of Christians lost their lives rescuing Jews. We'll never know how many are trying to rescue Jews. Because sometimes, like... Uh, so if the Nazis would raid a house and there were Jews hiding there, they would just kill everybody on the spot, including the Christians. So we'll never really know how many it was. But there's an estimate, probably the highest estimate I've ever seen, and I actually was talking to the guy who runs the rescuer office at Yad Vashem in Jerusalem, uh, the Israeli Holocaust Museum. And he, he thought there may have been as many as 250,000 Christians or non-Jews who helped Jews survive. But that's in a population, you know, 400 million, you know, something like that. So, mm-hmm. so it was um, very, very small percentage, but a very inspiring percentage. I urge all Christians to take seriously the moral examples left to us by what are called by the Jewish community the righteous Gentiles of the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. But now, um, you know, I, I, I can only just surmise and speculate on what it must feel like, that pressure, the fear when you have the knock on your door and you have yeah. someone there and what do you do. But really, our call to Christ is to die to self from the day we come to Christ, period, right? I mean, yeah. we, we, we're we called, there shouldn't be, if we have a right relationship with Christ, there shouldn't be a hesitation to give up our, 
our life for what we feel Christ would do or cause us to do, whether it's to protect the innocent. Uh, you know, in fact, I think in some ways it, it may be harder for some people when they have to make decisions of principle that may wipe out their life savings that they built for a life, and they're called to, right. yeah, yeah. To, to do something where they've lost everything that they've worked and saved for. That, that might even be more of a, a temptation to resist than, than giving up your life. But, but, but really, you know, instead of 1%, the church, in a proper relationship with Christ, should have larger numbers of people that were willing and not resist to give their life up. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And Tom, still going quick, bionic. Yes, uh, we don't have much time because this interview goes so long, but there's so much richness that really mm-hmm. is hard to add much. Intellectual fudge cake. Uh, he's a guy who should have been on our show a long time ago, yeah, shouldn't he? maybe we should have him back. So glad he had some discussions. It's going to get more interesting, but we're going to have to go now. But come back tomorrow for our next segment. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. Quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom, a big fan of Christian ethics, bionic. Yes, particularly when you have people like... Professor David Geshe, who is a professor of Christian ethics at Mercer University and the editor of Religious Faith Torture on Our National Soul, uh, talking with us this week about torture, rendition, and the war on terror, a crisis for the American church. Mm-hmm. You're going to hear from a prominent evangelical leader in Professor Geshe, very influential in evangelical circles and also in regular cultural circles, mm-hmm. very distinguished gentleman we have on that's going to have a very impassioned discussion. And I think our listeners are going to really enjoy it. I know Hopefully I, they have so I far. Know I sure have. So here's Professor Gushy, and we'll be back to wrap it up here at Future Quake. I'll put a plug in for this book that's still in print, Righteous Gentiles of the Holocaust, where I, I wrote about this and kind of explored the whole Christian angle and so on. Um, I, The kind of radical, uncompromising discipleship that's, that understands exactly what you just said, wow, you know, you've died with Christ, and really every moment you, you live after that is a gift, and it's not guaranteed you, and your calling is to be faithful wherever that leads. Uh, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Um, you're, you're ready to pay the price. I wish, I wish it was where all Christians were. It's probably never been where a majority of Christians are, at least not, not since Christianity became such a widely spread, well-established religion. Mm-hmm. Um, but it certainly did motivate a lot of really admirable and courageous Christians in, in Europe during the Holocaust. Pastors could be preparing their congregations now for that, though, couldn't they? Well, at all times, uh, every, I mean, every time we gather in church, the leaders of the church have an opportunity to teach that, that message. The righteous Gentiles are actually a pretty good uh, avenue into mm-hmm. that. Um, but there's, there are so many different other ones related mm-hmm. to just basic Christian doctrine about what it means to follow Christ. The, the, the early church, as I understand, when they, they understood this principle of dying to self when they came to Christ, and they knew and expected there will be a day eventually when you will give your life up for your principle. They looked it square in the eye, and they even rejoiced over it. Over, over the, the opportunity that, that they would have and how, how it would actually work out where they could make a stand in principle and to be able to die or sacrifice for their relationship with Christ. They were ready to do it partly because it happened to them periodically. And so mm-hmm. they had a living memory of it. They, and they mm-hmm. honored the martyrs and they told those stories. And in the extensive 
preparation process before people were baptized, they were adequately fully warned about about the suffering that may lie ahead. Not guaranteed, but it might. Uh, that doesn't mean every Christian in the first three three hundred right. years, you know, you know, sure. came through. But but they a lot of them did, and it was they were well trained, you might say, for whatever might come. Mm-hmm. I don't think we're nearly as well trained. Right. Uh, probably not at all. <laughs> well, <laughs> let, let me make sure to to, to, to to sum this back up, move back to today. In, in this situation, in in uh, war, the wartime, at World War II time, you had a Christian community that had people of another Abrahamic faith in their midst that were isolated and singled out by the government as a scapegoat for all that was wrong in their country and the fact that they were an immediate threat to the well-being of their country, and, and that their mere presence and practicing of their faith was a danger uh, to the people in their own country. Um, I'm, I'm glad that there's no parallel today to that. That's a, a rather acute um, way to say it, and that, you know, I, I have been involved in writing and thinking about what we're dealing with right at this minute with uh, uh, Islamophobia, I think you can call it, and I don't know how far you want to go down and talk about that tonight, but I would just say that um, that there is a parallel. When, when you study something like the Holocaust day and night for three years, as I did, it leaves its mark on you, and, and you notice certain patterns, and, and you begin to be pretty vigilant about certain patterns, and I'm feeling kind of worried about a pattern right now, and it's you said it very well. So uh, my moral vision has been shaped by watching the vicariously, but it's as if I was there because I read so much about it, and was it was like I was there in my imagination, watching the Christians of Europe turn their backs on the Jews, and in some cases help the Nazis kill them. And uh, I just don't want to have anything to do with anything remotely like that phenomenon. And so I get worried whenever Christians um, kind of don't have the, the, the vigilance that we need to have about similar trends. Well, I know way, one way how to help you in that, in that problem and concern you feel. You need to quit reading about that kind of stuff and watch Dancing with the Stars or, or American Idol. Possibly join Glenn Beck and his... Or, or whatever. Rose what? Crusade or whatever the that is. The Black Regiment, yeah. What you you just need something like this, a little soma that you can take, yeah, and that'll get you <laughs> over facing these kind of things. Get that man some uh, Seroquel. Uh, as you address in the chapter that you wrote yourself in this book uh, called "What the Torture Debate Reveals About American Christianity," um, in that document, how do you explain how governments have advantages? in terms of being able to use their power to harm people and violate human rights over those in society who try to resist them? Um, well, this, just, this was an example where my, my study of, of the Nazi era provided at least a few clues. Um, I said in that chapter that governments have an informational advantage and that only the government really knows, especially when they're trying to keep it secret, what exactly is going on, where all the prisons are, what's happening in all the prisons, uh, who, who they're holding, what they're doing to them, all that. And they have an authority advantage in that most citizens uh, at least begin with a default kind of, you know, government government has certain kinds of responsibilities for security, and, and, and so they have to do what they have to do. And also an intimidation advantage, especially when, when government 
creates a kind of repressive atmosphere that that um, punishes people for dissenting or raising questions, then they have that as an advantage as well. And so I suggested in that chapter that basically the government has a head start. If it wants to start fudging on constitutional principles or start mistreating people, it's going to be a while till people find out about it. They're going to have a hard time getting good information about it. They're going to face all kinds of denials for a long period of time. And uh, and maybe it'll be it can be a little bit intimidating uh, if you try to raise questions. And uh, that happened in in our case in the in during the post 9/11 period. Like when people within the government would raise questions to their superiors, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes they were forced out of their positions or, or told to be quiet or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I would say uh, so I did see some parallels there. Yeah. Okay. And so there's a there's an inertia involved, and I assume that's even more so. A lot more angst for those who are the most patriotic in society. Yeah, trying to be loyal citizens, trying to you know you know stand up for your country, and and uh, patriotism is a very interesting phenomenon because there's a lot that's good about it, but there's a lot that's dangerous about it. And, and you've spoken about both. I've seen in your writings. Yeah, uh, I write about patriotism quite a bit. Yeah, yeah, you've actually wrote about the things that your fellow peers need to be careful to respect out of patriotism, but yeah. to really put it in proper context. Uh, one of your articles from the Observation in a Ball Game, I noticed you, yeah. you, you were sort of musing a little bit, and you said, you know, isn't it interesting that the sum total of patriotism we, we sort of invoke into our military, which is fine, they're, they're a noble entity in their own right, but we don't take our other branches of what makes our country great, like our judiciary or other yeah. parts of what makes it American. We, we we don't really extend that kind of myth status, I guess that's my word, uh, yeah. that that we do in our in our patriotism. So so I I can see that some of this uh, these challenges. Of course, the, the age old thing, the practical thing that the government does to cover their tracks is just simply classify everything. <laughs> right. That's one of their more effective. And, and and we 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 I thought for a brief instant in time in the 70s maybe and in 80s we had a culture where whistleblowers had protection. But now we see whistleblowers like this whole thing with WikiLeaks and things like this, yeah. where that hole is closing up, where uh, where people yeah. don't don't focus on the fact what kind of shocking admissions do these documents show? They'd rather focus on the fact, well, how dare somebody release anything, whether whether it's something alarming the public should know or not. The key fact is that somebody would release the documents. Yeah, I one of the the things I think I have learned through engagement in this one national security issue is we have a massive post-World War II national security apparatus that has grown like kudzu. You guys are in Tennessee. You know all about kudzu, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that, that yeah. is probably one of the best pictures I can ever think of yeah. is the kudzu analogy. That's exactly right. right. And and it just keeps on growing, and and you try to trim it back, and and you know five days later there's more than before you you worked at. It. We had kudzu in our backyard when we lived in Jackson, Tennessee, and it was like it just wanted to take over everything. Um, and so I think that the Cold War triggered the development of a, a security bureaucracy that grew like kudzu. And I mean Eisenhower warned about about it, and he said, "Watch out for for this." Um, you know, national security apparatus kind of taking over the whole government. I, I remember talking to somebody who said, uh, watch what will happen with Obama. He'll come in with his own ideas, but within about two months, he'll be captured by the national security apparatus. Mm-hmm. Right. It happens happens to every president. Uh, and I think the CIA 
is just one of, you know, an alphabet soup of intelligence agencies that we're not really able to control or have much oversight over, uh, very thinly uh, regulated or even understood. So so I, I think it's a broader picture. And it, for those, you know, patriots these days who are really worried about the Constitution and about whether the people are actually in charge of this government, one place to look is 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 with the national security bureaucracy. That's a high percentage of our shows of late mm-hmm. have been focusing more on on how this reaches into our media, the control they have, the people actually on the CIA payroll that we have in major media, newspapers, every element of our society and institutions. We have a gentleman like Hal Turner mm-hmm. who actually was a provocateur yeah, for, to provoke the right wing. Going on like eight years. Yeah, he yeah. he was probably one of the most popular and more the right wing extremist uh, radio mm-hmm. camp. Uh, mm-hmm. And then we find out, you know, in court admission that he was an FBI agent mm-hmm. uh, who, who who actually was just trying to uh, uh, provoke this kind of activity so then they could clamp down, you know, and get the kudos for it. So uh, we're, we're with you on that. That's much of what we talk about. You know, something in the evangelical community that I'm sure you're aware of that, that has an impact on how people look at the, the government's right to do what they're doing in the war on terror and similar human rights relates to their understanding of Romans chapter 13. Mm-hmm. Can you give just a real brief comment on on why they think that and if you have issue with, with a common interpretation there? Romans, this is a really good case study in how the Bible uh, functions and how it ought to function in the shaping of Christian discipleship. Um, Romans 13 has become, well, for one thing, it's taken out of context. Romans 13, 1 through 7 is not read in light of Romans 12 or what, what's in Romans right. 13 or whatever, but but it has become the text, and there's a certain kind of authoritarian reading of Romans 13 that has been understood to be everybody who's in a government position is put there by God. At least some, there's been that strand. Everything that a government does must be... Uh, uh, ordained by God, anybody who resists what a government wants to do is resisting what God wants, and uh, and will be punished rightly by God or by the state for doing so. And what I think is interesting is you do have a fair amount of conservative resistance to conservative evangelical resistance to government when the government is in non-republican hands. Right. Right. When the gov- when the government is in Republican hands, maybe it tends to tends to be a little bit more muted. But but there is a longer history of acquiescence to whatever the government wants to do or whoever is at the top of government as God ordained. And I think uh, that that strand um, has tended to weaken our vigilance related to government overstepping its bounds or or uh, or violating violating constitutional principles or whatever. Hmm. Well, yeah. you, you know, the the way I've always understood that passage is that uh, when it talks about authorities and obeying authorities, we're in a very unique situation in the last two or three hundred years, having representative democracies, relatively new phenomenon, uh, in that the authority that, our, that we recognize as the final authority is the Constitution. Right. Uh, our, our laws. So, you know, uh, we, we don't have a Caesar or a king who actually is the final authority. The laws actually are. The people who sit in the Oval Office or Congress are, are really are 
representatives that just are supposed to carry out the will as expressed in those laws. So the, the obeying the law, as I understand it in America, should be obeying the Constitution and the real authority rests in the Constitution. Therefore, when we have leaders that do not obey the, the express principles of the Constitution, they become by definition lawbreakers. And we have by definition a requirement to address lawbreakers uh, when they terrorize society, even if they're in public office at the time. And, and, and the other point is that in our form of government, this is considered self-government that we have. Right. When we're in self-government, we actually elect these people to be our proxies. Right. Uh, we, we basically call the shots, theoretically. We elect these people to do our will, our wishes, as opposed to a king. Therefore, the res- what I see are the guidelines actually that God gives in the Bible for rulers, and what he expects of rulers are addressed to each of us as citizens because we are responsible for selecting them, and then also God will hold us accountable for their actions. And you, you look at the, the people that the book of Romans were addressed to originally were, were a group of, uh, of Christians who were under Roman rule, who ruled the entire known world at the time, and they had absolutely no impact on the decisions of state at that right. time. And if they even attempted to, it was totally futile and foolhardy. They would just be immediately crucified and be done with. So there was nothing to be gained by taking on the state back then or taking any action. But at the same time, they will never be held accountable for any of the decisions that Caesar made uh, because they had they had no bearing. Where, where I worry that the same won't be said true of us, where, where we actually are, are the ones who are picking the proxies to rule on our behalf and to do our wishes. And when they do these things, I'm, I fear that we're going to be held accountable uh, for these kind of actions. For example, the torture that we're talking about today. Will American Christians be held accountable for God for the fact that they did not place this in a high priority and a major part of their activity like they spent on other other worthwhile issues, the family issues that, that you know, you've mentioned and others, but, but have not put this on a front burner? Will it be held at our feet? I think I really, really like the way you said that. It, it struck me relatively recently that we who are carefully trained, at least some of us are carefully trained, to read the Bible taking the context seriously, have not read Romans 13 taking the context seriously. The political context was exactly as you've described it. And so your, your, um, the, your, your instructions are to people who are totally subjugated. Uh, subject, they are subjects of this government. They are not citizens of this government. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so if you're going to do good interpretive work there, you have to make the translation to the political context in which we actually find ourselves. And it took a long time for Christians to figure that out, and many Christians still have not figured that out. So how Romans 13 looks when you might say it's addressed as if we are the state that is being addressed as opposed to, I mean, we're simultaneously the law a maker, you might say, and the one who must uh, be subject to the, to the laws that we ourselves have made. And that's a little bit more complicated to sort through. But the general principle that Christians have citizenship opportunities for which we will be held accountable, I think is absolutely right. I think every one of our listeners should get this book that we referred to uh, on torture that, that you were editor for and read it because you will read it. it. It actually uses a tremendous amount of restraint as far as giving the gory details, but there is enough in that book to cause sleepless nights uh, with the things that have actually been done, the inhumane treatment done to people 
by Americans uh, to, uh, to other people, including women, uh, including uh, a, a number of young innocents. Um, but, but the thing that really came clear for me from, from reading uh, some of these different writers, and it's a, it's a you know, anthology of a lot, lot of contributions from different writers, that some who have experienced torture themselves, some Americans in Guatemala, other places who have gone through it. But can you explain what comes through in this book about what does torture do? Uh, how does it do more than just cause temporary physical pain and maiming in terms of the impact to personal human value that it does, a degradation of the human spirit, and, and, and rendering a spirit of hopelessness in, in the recipients with, with these effects, in fact, being, being actually even targeted to be accomplished by the state when they do this kind of thing, as opposed to just being merely intelligence gathering, and, and even the impact it has on the torturer as well as the tortured. Can, can you comment on those things? There are uh, two, I think, quite powerful essays in the book uh, related to that. One is by uh, a nun, um, Catholic nun who was tortured in Guatemala, that chapter will keep you up at night. Yeah. And she tells her story there. And, in fact, Diana, or sister Diana Ortiz, is kind of controversial in the anti-torture community because her account is so bleak. There's not a lot of hope there. And in the the anti, or you might say the the torture therapeutic community, and there is there is a therapeutic community in the U.S. of people who what they do all day is help people recover from torture. We get a fair number of refugees who come to the U.S. who have been tortured in different places. And um, places like the Center for Victims of Torture, which is one of my favorite organizations, um, because they, well, all they do all day is, is minister psychological healing uh, with people who have been through this around the world. Anyway, they want, they want a, a somewhat more hopeful kind of message. But what Sister Diana has said, and I've heard her speak, um, it's, it's amazing, is, is that it, it it was an assault on her personhood. It was an it was an effort to break her spirit, to destroy her as a human being, degrade, subjugate, uh, to convince her that that she was absolutely worthless, powerless, and uh, she was utterly under the control of her abusers. And um, for an indefinite amount of time, uh, and the pleasure that that the people seem to be taking in having that kind of power over her was at least as damaging as the actual physical harms uh, that were done. Mm-hmm. People who, who parse legalistic, you know, is this amount, is this much waterboarding actually torture? How about that much waterboarding? Um, and if it doesn't leave lasting physical damage, is it really torture? I just, uh, I don't know how they sleep at night. Um, and they're totally missing the boat. The, the fact is, whether right. there's a physical mark or welt or whatever like this, you you have really destroyed a person much more than a bullet can do. Yeah, and I know that there have been people in our custody who have been destroyed in that way by what we have done to them. It hasn't been, I don't think it's been hundreds of people. Maybe it's been dozens of people. But we'll know, but we we currently don't know. We still don't have all the facts. But but you know, I read accounts. I think a couple of them are in the book of of people who, having been subjected to round after round of inhumane abuse, uh, were just kind of a puddle of uh, of you know of goo on the floor. There was nothing left to them. They had been mentally destroyed, and um, and after a while you realize this isn't really about interrogation anymore. Mm-hmm. 
uh, it doesn't, I mean, there's this debate of whether you get good intelligence. I mean, when you're on round number 20 with somebody, you've probably gotten whatever information you're going to get. It's really just about inflicting pain at that point and demonstrating mastery. You are powerless, and we can do to you whatever we want. We know it, and you know it, um, and and that's the whole point. That's generally how torture is employed around the world. And if I, if I understand the Chinese, for example, their big thing is to extract confessions. So these people confess that the state was right, that they were wrong before they execute them, that they actually will give them the blessing of execution if they will confess. But in other words, they'll stop the torture and take their life swiftly if they'll first confess how the state was right and these people were wrong. I often wonder if, you know, since a lot of these confessions were extracted through torture, if it's something that the state uses just to justify their own position with with the citizens. Uh, I think to, often, yeah, it, it says we were always right. We need your admission that we were right. Um, and then you know, people will say anything to end torture. Uh, and so I think that I, I look back on, on, this, on this season in our history with great sadness, but I don't think we've I don't still don't think we know everything that happened, nor do I think we know everything that has happened, you know, even during the Cold War period. Um, and I, I look with incomprehension upon Christians who uh, who are perfectly sanguine and complacent about it. It's not a big deal, and why would you make a fuss over it? I just don't, I don't understand that at all. Well, I would certainly recommend you talk to Dr. Colin Ross, who heads a uh, he's a clinical psychologist in Texas, psychiatrist, who actually has written much about the Cold War. And uh, Project Artichoke and what and were Project Bluebird was kind of the big one. Well, s- several of them that actually were were involved in um, basically using torture MK and trauma, Ultra. MK, MK Ultra, Ultra. To- torture and trauma to to create multiple personality disorder and to actually have submerged personalities. They 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 believe that the Chinese were already doing this, uh, so they could actually you know tuck. Uh, uh, inf- hidden information. Well, yeah, and yeah. they could they could Home put classified information would be submerged in a person to be extracted. But it involved this kind of torture and trauma, and it was treated very clinically. But it, it actually uh, was involved with the direct support of academia. Academia published an open literature about this activity going on. The subjects were unwitting. They were not told they were part of these studies or what was involved. Uh, everyone everyone was aware, like the Tuskegee experiment kind of thing. Yeah, so yeah. I agree with you that this is other ways it makes manifest. And what happens is these people trade notes. These, these people in one area, maybe out of the pure military activity with prisoners and things, will take this information and use it with this other community of people. And they always find somebody... Uh, you know, wanting a Dr. Frankenstein uh, that's an expert in these kind of areas to help him with it. So I really don't believe we've seen the last of it. And yeah. uh, uh, there, there are some conjectures that um, there was so much of that done during a period of time from the from the government files that a, a, a significant percentage of people we find in our homeless shelters and psychiatric places and others can be tracked back sometimes to some of these government projects or were done through clinics or other medical facilities where these people were on board and funded by the government unbeknownst to the people who received treatment. So there are many manifestations of it, uh, I'm sure. Uh, Well, I mean, I think, uh, I don't, you know, I haven't done enough research on some of that to know, but I I do know that ends justify any means kind of thinking is always dangerous. The Cold War era unleashed a kind of a, a widespread 
our civilization is at risk, we must do what must be done to protect America. And in a sense, one might say we have not stopped thinking that way since 1941, December, um, maybe mm-hmm. since since uh, Pearl Harbor, maybe since the Cold War. Uh, that's a long time to, to be in a kind of a permanent state of national emergency. Correct. And I think... Uh, one of the things I would really like to see more Christians asking those kinds of questions, uh, being you know, being fueled by our our, des- our love for people and our desire for a society that that is more like what God wants it to be, that we would be willing to ask the hard questions. We're back to Future Quake with Doctor Future and Tom Lightning Bionic. Yes. Any comments you have so far in our discussion? A few uh, seconds. I thought it was very sad to find out that well under one percent of the Christians in Europe helped Jews during the mm-hmm. Holocaust. Mm-hmm. That was pretty like bad. How many people are helping victims of the war on terror right now? You think? Uh, I would say that are being blacklisted. Yeah, probably maybe a few more by. I don't know. Hard to I say. Don't I don't know if it's one percent. Well, come back, ladies and gentlemen, for our last segment with Professor Geshe. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And Tom, informative, intimidating, and authoritative bionic. Where did that come from? Those are three uh, advantages that the government has when they start fudging on constitutional principles. You've been taking notes from Professor Gushy's stuff. We need to get more of his stuff to review. Wouldn't Indeed. you agree? Yeah. I mean, just for our own education. Indeed. Have him back. We hope you're enjoying uh, Professor David Gushy, who's Professor of Christian Ethics at Mercer University and editor uh, of the book Religious Faith, Torture, and Our National Soul, mm-hmm. uh, amongst many other books he's done. And we're talking about torture, rendition, and the war on terror, crisis for the American church. We've got a rush. We've got very little time, but we'll be back to discuss it here on Future Quake. Zoom. Well, and that's what we that's what we attempt to do here. When you, you mentioned about the state of emergency since then, that, that that's exactly the way we see it. We just see that the, the Muslims have replaced the communists. Mm-hmm. As it's, it's almost eerie that they, we use the exact sort of same kinds of rhetoric. Cold War rhetoric. It's same, one yeah. for one, a, a new boogeyman yeah. that, that basically yeah, the, the ends justify the means. 20 hours a day sharpening their scimitars over there, we, walking yeah. lockstep. And we have to believe that there is such an imminent threat that it justifies extreme measures on like our behalf. 1984, you know. But but I, th- I think you say, well, Dr. Gushy, we consider ourselves an emergency state for 60 years. It gets to be a little hard to justify. Um, I and mean, if you d- if you develop a habit after 40 days, I would say if you got a habit going for 70 years, then it's going to be a pretty deep habit. You know? in- endemic. That's that's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, so something that I don't know if people fully understand. Can you explain? And this was disclosed in this book too. Another very disturbing part: how American tort Torture and detainment techniques during the war on terror actually address the religious faith of Muslims in the Quran and, and target it. It's much more than what I've heard in the news. Yeah, one of our um, contributors, uh, Michael Papard, if I'm remembering his name, yeah, um, basically by reading um, Arabic sources and digging around in some of the literature that uh, that I was not that familiar with shows. Uh, that, that there was much more systemic kinds of religious desecration 
like of the Quran of of uh, detainees in in Guantanamo and elsewhere. Uh, there began to be, I mean, we began to hear about some of this stuff uh, in news stories, um, kind of drip by drip, after like 2004, 2005. But he shows that that it was uh, widespread and systematic, and it was again, it was part of. I mean, were you getting interrogation information out of that? No, you're not. You are doing humiliation. You are attempting to um, to destroy the spirit, to break the spirit. You figure, you discover that desecration of sacred objects like the Quran is really, really a big deal. Um, and so precisely because it is, that's what you do. And uh, and so... Now, now can, I, can I clarify here? When I read your book, I thought the, the many contributors bent over backwards to clarify their sources for information. The majority of sources in your book are from government documents. That's right. From our own government admission of what they did. And, and if I can give one example uh, to, to, to our listeners of what I'm referring to, yeah. there were incidents talked about where they would actually strip a practicing Muslim captive naked. They would send in a female. Uh, she would take off her clothes she would basically straddle over him and do other kind of things to him that would break every taboo he had in his faith. Right. Here was a person who was trying to maintain a chastity for God and his commitment to God. In other words, he had put down his own natural human desires because he believed he was serving God by maintaining his chastity, and we were trying to break him from his commitment to God in that respect. Yes, that is true. I'm glad you I'm glad you pulled that out. That's that is true. It wasn't just desecrating objects, but but attempting to humiliate kind of religiously and sexually. Um and to there were a number of instances in which taboos related to to uh male female contact related to nudity, um uh lewd kind of I mean, it was just kind of like uh frat boy pranks prank stuff, but it was done with a purpose. It was done uh, intentionally and systematically to humiliate and to to cause extreme religious moral pain. And, by the way, the idea, I mean, what what is somebody who gets released from Guantanamo after having that kind of experience going to think about the United States of America? Mm-hmm. What, what are they going to think about what we believe about God and about religion? I mean, it, that's pretty darn uh pagan and um and well, well, decadent even, kind of behavior even more so what will god think about the united states of america you know it's it's bad that the people in the rest of the world see this is is, is what we represent and then equate christianity with it but god himself is looking down you know you know that person when they're experiencing that when they're trying to devote themselves to god as they understand it when they're doing this and trying to maintain their chastity or their devotion to to their word, uh, and they see this done to them, they're going to cry out to God. Yeah, they're going to true. cry out to God for mercy. The question is, will God hear their prayer? As, as, as perfectly or imperfectly that they know him, will God hear their prayer when they are reaching out to try to please him and honor him as they know how, and we have institutes of a state who are actually trying to break his commitment to God? as he understands it, will God hear his plea and strike vengeance against those who wreak that against him? Well, let's just say that we, in our national discourse, we really like to talk about how innocent we are and how terrible they are. 
And when you read an, enough of this stuff of what actually went on, then you, you don't see a, a spotless America. It's too bad, but it's true. And we have to deal with that fact. And Christians do have the resources to be able to disentangle the country that we live in and that we love and to say, well, we, we live here and we love it. We love this country, but but this country is not the church and this country is not godly always or even often. And this country can make mistakes. And, and it's okay to acknowledge that. In fact, sometimes we must acknowledge that. Would you give us the grace of just a few extra minutes to ask some some wrap up questions? Sure. Do, do you have that flexibility? I don't want to yeah. abuse abuse your time with us, but if you don't mind, this is just I think it's so critical. Um, we talk a lot about the Christian media on our show, particularly the big national media, the ones that has tremendous resources and backing and things like this. In your knowledge, what has the national Christian media networks, and I'll even name some names, groups like TBN. Uh, even Internet, World Net Daily, Moody Broadcast Network, Salem Communications, and the go- list goes on and on. What have they done to address these issues? And, and uh, any, you know, anything to address what's going on? And even like you said, uh, long-standing actions by American intelligence agencies being involved in these kind of foreign affairs to, to do these kind of things. How much do you hear from the Christian media on these topics? Very little. Um, when we were trying to, one of the first things I did with Evangelicals for Human Rights was to try to to get a broad uh, number of signatures for a statement called the Evangelical Declaration Against Torture, which one could still find uh, online. And uh, we were basically embargoed with with everybody to the right of center in uh, Christian media and in in terms of the leadership, we got no support from people uh, who you would think of as, you know, the general world of Christian radio and, and media and, and the large, the largest and most visible conservative Christian organizations. They were, to the extent that we got um, noticed, it was, with criticism, oh, you're being political, oh, you're distracting us from more important issues, um, you're dividing the church, uh, you're just democratic partisans or or whatever. And but so, this, this has nothing to do with left or right, does it? it has in nothing, my view, it doesn't. It has no, principled issues. It has nothing to do whether you believe in the state you know, support over people's welfare and their and their, their financing and their jobs or whether you believe in free enterprise and capitalism. This is just human decency we're talking about, is it not? I and totally it, think so. And if the right say they're not in the human decency business, then I assume God is going to have some issues with them then. I, I'm saying this is one who comes from a, a strong conservative legacy myself. But but coming from that background, if, if human rights and decency is not part of it, then I've distanced myself from God. I, I agree. I, I think so much has to do with... Um, with political loyalty in the heat of the of the moment, you know, uh, this was understood to be what the Bush administration was doing. Everybody loved Bush, and so therefore, any criticism of this policy is a criticism of our beloved president. Christians, I think, have to do better than that, and we 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 often don't. And left or right, st- you could still be a supporter of of Bush or someone else, a Republican candidate, whatever, um, wh- whatever it is, and still speak out strongly against these activities. 
And some did. Some of the most inspiring people that I met in the struggle against torture were career military people. I mean, tough as nails, Marine-type people, uh, people who had been in the Pentagon all their lives, people who had been in the judiciary or whatever, uh, legal profession. Um, and they uh, they were <laughs> often, you know, even, always, uh, you know, the ones I'm talking about, evangelical Christians and often Republican voters. And they said, you know, absolutely not to this. This is a matter of principle. Meanwhile, I'll continue to vote the way I've always voted about all these other issues, but no to this. They knew mm-hmm. how to do that. Right. They knew how to say no where it was time to say no. And I think, just to not put too fine a point on it, that the most visible Christian conservative organizations failed in that moment to provide the leadership that was required and uh, and therefore they they abdicated their moral responsibilities. Well, you know that, that that's the kind of inclination we're led with here. We, mm-hmm. we we sort of stand back and look at all of the resources they have, their ability to pool consensus, and, and to be able to uh, influence the debate within Christian circles. And it's squandered opportunities uh, that are there while while they keep beating the same drum on on issues while somebody's child is being tortured. Somebody somewhere, son or daughter or, or loved one, is, is facing a hopeless condition. And really what we should be doing is everybody drop what they're doing right now and address the things that really matter right now, uh, why it matters. One of the things you're showing here, which I, I love and I really appreciate this kind of conversation, I, I can't tell you how many times I wish I could have had this kind of conversation with with people during the, the heart of the battle, but is there is a difference between being a radical follower of Christ and just being somebody who's politically conservative and goes to church. Mm, huge. Okay. And, you know, and we've gotten, in large parts of our culture, especially the South, where we both live, or where we all live, have gotten confused about that. Um, I believe in radical political independence because I am a radical follower of Christ. Uh, I now have a Facebook page, by the way, and then you know how you're supposed to put on Facebook, what is your political affiliation? Right. And mine says, Jesus Christ is Lord. <laughs> Amen. That is my political affiliation. Yeah. I think mean, mine is unite under the king of kings. <laughs> so, so there you go. You don't, you, you don't have, like, just a single lover you pull in the booth, in other words? <laughs> well, no. I mean, and I don't, and I'm, um, you know, customarily disgusted with both parties, and and that's, I think, appropriate. But, you know, I have my leanings, but I, I, I know that um, Jesus Christ is Lord, and that means I, hold, I, I try to keep my distance from the, the politicians of the moment and try to, to follow biblical principles. And, you know, the, one of the things I, I say in my chapter in the book is the Christian right fell hard for a couple of issues that I do believe are important, you know, kind of sanctity of life, uh, abortion-related right. issues. And Amen. I, by the way, I... Uh, I believe sanctity of life should be holistically understood, but definitely abortion and uh, and family, you know, family related issues. So, so they were doing that, and they understood that was important, and I believe that's important. But whoever whoever found in the Bible that God has a narrow agenda, God cares about everything that has to do with the creatures that He has made and, and loved so profoundly in Christ. And so, you know, if somebody's child is being tortured, that's a sanctity of life issue, and we might need to to uh, pay a little bit of attention and mobilize our resources to do something about it. 
uh, just as we mobilize our resources on other issues. And you know, I think Jesus actually shocked a few of his religious peers when he would drop things he was doing and, uh, you know, draw water from a Samaritan woman, you know, actually get water from her or help somebody, you know, who had some kind of healing issue, even though it Heal was a Sabbath. Sabbath. Yeah. So so yeah. his his heat came from his religious peers because he stopped to do his father's business instead of the Wait. religious business. And an interesting lesson there is we need to be attentive to what's going on right around us because sometimes God is speaking to us through a, through the moment, through what is happening at that moment. And mm-hmm. and I think maybe that's what happened with the torture thing for me. I hope I somebody brought it to my attention. I really wasn't doing anything about it for three years after it had been gone, it had been been happening. And Somebody said, "Will you pay attention to this and look at it?" And I studied it, and I and I realized, "Wow, this is an outrage, and I need to do something about it." And um, and that person is a hero. Who, who brought that up to you? It was the editors of Christianity Today magazine. Okay. So, well, wow. three cheers for Christianity Today. Hey, I've got one last uh, little yeah. comment. You've already seen me. I can get a little long-winded on some of my questions, but I want your want your comment on this on some perspectives I have. Uh, you know, I have noted previously that the status of the American Evangelical Influence in Society, I, we say, is at a crossroads. Uh, much like the uh, institutional church was in France during the Dreyfus Affair at the dawn of the 20th century. I assume you're familiar with that. You know, some of the things I've noticed in studying that is an uncanny parallel to today. Uh, when the church in that era knowingly decided to align with the powers of the state and the military, against an innocent officer of another Abrahamic faith who was set up by both institutions. And this was in the church's attempt to retain its role of power and influence in both institutions and society in general by promoting patriotism uh, in the institutions in opposition to the individual that was being sacrificed. Um, And ironically at that time, the Arab press actually spoke up in defense of this Jewish officer uh, and against anti-Semitism in Europe in general. And it invited them to come as uh, to get away from the anti-Semitism. Now, as we know now, in the wake of the church's silence in this incident, in stepping up to defend this innocent man in society and the Dreyfus affair, and rather they they joined in in defaming him, as they said, for the good of society, a secular group of artistic intelligentsia in their country came to his defense in the in the moral void that was there, and at their great personal sacrifice and with many setbacks that they had over time. Uh, they eventually, as a result, uh, not only led to his release over the years, but as a result brought a long-term secular influence of civil rights into France, while at the same time the church in France declined in influence until much of the leadership there eventually embraced full-blown fascism. Uh, with, as I understand it, some of these same leaders uh, promoting Dreyfus's destruction, uh, later becoming uh, leaders uh, in the Vichy France movement, uh, in the Nazi That's puppet right. state, while while the state actually at that incident shortly dis, uh, thereafter just established the church as the official church in the state and passed legislation making France a purely secular state as a consequence of this embarrassment. Keeping that perspective, does the evangelical church in America now run the same risk as the French church a century ago with the risk of becoming a non-influential force in society or at worst an agent of fascism? if they continue to side with the state versus the individual injustice? Wow. 
Are you for real? Like, it's amazing. I mean, uh, I think we think along such similar lines that you're scaring me, so this is awesome. Um, we are asked that a lot if we're for real. Yeah. Well, you ought to see our email. Yeah. Wow. Um, <laughs> but rarely, uh, I, rarely I, I've written. <laughs> I've written recently about the Dreyfus Affair. Really? I didn't know oh, that. Yeah. I didn't know. Uh, okay. in, in my Huffington Post column uh, not long ago, I... I suggested that we were in Dreyfus territory related to what was happening uh, with Muslims and the okay. mosque controversy and so on. Wow. Um, and the parallel is not exact, but there are a lot of interesting um, parallels. I think because the role of the state is is a little bit different, I think, in, in, the, in the different contexts. But things that are similar um, – the church has a force of kind of reaction against a religious minority. Uh, the church aligned with other powerful institutions in society trying to, uh, right now, um, to kind of suppress or harass that religious minority. And in the, the case of Dreyfus, the state was, was, uh, was, uh, you know, implementing this harassment, whereas I think in, the current situation, the state is, however, weakly trying to resist this harassment. But, um, but yeah, I think that there's no question that, especially the role of the Catholic Church in France during that time, when you look back on it, it's so odious and so hateful, and uh, the f- inflaming of anti-Semitism. People were shouting uh, "death to the Jews" when Dreyfus was being um, court-martialed, as I understand, people are shouting right. "kill them, kill them all." when they're protesting sometimes outside of the the potential mosque site in New York. Um, and the church was discredited profoundly by its 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 direct involvement in uh, a specific injustice against Dreyfus and the broader direct involvement in, in flaming anti-Semitism. In, in the end, France became one of the most secular countries in Europe. Uh, the church utterly discredited for its political shenanigans that were that did not bring credit to the gospel. And now France is one of the hardest to evangelize regions in the entire in mm-hmm. the entire world. Right. In fact I'll be going to Lyon, France, uh in November to to kind of work with a hardy group of missionaries that are over there trying to re evangelize and or you know, newly evangelize right. France. So, yeah. um, so there was a moral vacuum created by the church not stepping up. I that would somebody say else filled. It's almost worse than a moral vacuum. The church utterly discredited itself through anti-Semitism and then collaboration with the Holocaust. The Vichy regime clearly collaborated with the Holocaust. And then you have just the carnage of World War II anyway. And so post-World mm-hmm. War II, you end up with a completely secularized France and people um, but it's, having... Yeah. It started with a single man who was unjustly condemned. And their knowing knowledge that he was unjustly condemned and willing to turn their back on them led to a domino effect that led to their descent in the abyss and, and becoming say, ineffectual in society. I would say that was a huge event and, and it deserves the attention that it gets. So the church... Had in France had been reacting to the French Revolution mm-hmm. and its, sure. its kind of loss of power and fear of secularism and so on. There is an interesting parallel because a lot of times evangelical Christians are just as anti-modern, anti 
secular, uh, kind of reactionary, and and you end up end up uh, backing some horses you wish you hadn't backed, kind of just kind of coalescing around angry reactionary kind of fervor that doesn't have much to do with the gospel at all, and it does discredit you. And it's yep. all fear based. The the and fear. The fear initiates the hate and initiates the other kind of extreme activities. And that's the warning I see, is that when we turn our back on single individuals that are innocent, whether they're sitting in Guantanamo, Abu Ghraib, a rendition camp, whether they're in one of our own prisons, an American citizen here in America, when America turns their back on them, Christians and the Christian community in America loses their, their uh, salt and their light. I would totally agree with that. And that's the biggest fear I have. I know we're past our time. We need to go. Can you give us a final word just to wrap up of what you suggest we do? Uh, we need to roll up our sleeves. We don't just need to go tisk tisk on this and move on. We need to take action. Tell us what we need to do in a call of action, and then tell us how we can get a hold of this material and follow up on your future work. Okay, thanks. Um, I think that... I would call your Christian listeners to check their hearts related to whether they are radical followers of Jesus or whether they are in the sway of a political ideology. And and I would check my heart when I make that call. We always need to be examining that in ourselves. Um, I would urge us to be reading diverse sources of information so that we're not being propagandized by anybody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I would urge us to be maximally exercising our citizenship responsibilities um, by, you know, opinion pieces and letters to the editor and phone calls and um, and being, even if we're the only person persistently raising a concern, it can matter. And I would say stop being sheep. You know, just because you have powerful, influential voices on TV or radio right now who are, who are saying a certain thing, Precisely because everybody believes it at the time, raise a question about it. Think for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, and be willing to be the unpopular opinion in a room over breakfast somewhere or, or in a Bible study somewhere when everybody's bashing the common enemy of the moment. Just you throw know, some you, truth out there and let it throw hit the some table. Truth. You know, yeah. you be the one. You, you be the one who says, "I totally disagree with what you're saying. I think it does not reflect the spirit of Christ." And but I still love you. Let's talk about it. You know, just kind of. I mean, don't be hateful, but but but. If only I could so, be that tactful. <laughs> you know, but but sometimes it's it's time to uh, to say enough is enough. You know, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I, I I would say um, this is a citizenship responsibility. It's also uh, an ecclesial responsibility. It needs to happen in the church, wherever Christians gather. When people start throwing around the slop, um, don't just let it go unchallenged. You know, and. Mm-hmm. Find a find a point of contact in our shared commitment to Christ and, and call people to a better way. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of uh, you know where you can get my stuff, I have a website davidpgushy.com, um, and I have uh, you know books can be can be linked off of that site or uh, on on Amazon. Um, can we and, get the book? Can we get the book? Our listeners get the book that we just reviewed. Yes, it's available on Amazon. It's in it's in print. Uh, it was published by Mercy University Press. You can go there or on Amazon. Just look up David P. Gushy on Amazon. You can see the whole collection. Okay. I also have a column on the Huffington Post and regularly on Washington Post and on Associated Baptist Press. Just uh, Google my name, and it's not—it's a pretty unusual name, so you'll—you'll you'll be able to track me down. 
You know, with those humble forms of media, you must have been so excited to finally get to make it on Future Quake. Yeah. Uh, your career has <laughs> progressed so much. I'm I'm quaking with the excitement. I know it's been great. Brother, I, I have yeah. been edified, and I've been very encouraged uh, by this conversation. So thank you. Brother, thank you for teaching us. I tell you, there are many who have not bowed their knees to Baal. I want to confirm to you. 7,000 uh, of us. Our, our audience, we have a, a large audience out there of people who understand and appreciate what we talked about, but we keep all challenging each other and keep pushing the ball forward anymore. And I want to thank you so much for joining us. I hope you would be so kind to uh, make a return visit sometime in the future with us. I would be happy to. I'm sorry it took a while to get this arranged, but uh, I'd be happy to do it again anytime. Well, you can show we're willing to skulk and track you down no matter what to get you on. (laughs) And it was worth it. I will say it was definitely worth it. Mm -hmm. And um, we would certainly love to have you back again. And I just want to thank you so much for coming on the Future Quake Show. You're very welcome. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And, Tom, hopefully I'll be a righteous Gentile when the Holocaust here comes, bionic. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Yeah. Um, To be. I tell you, I really want to hear a lot more of what he has to say, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm very curious to see what kind of reach he has. You know what's ironic, though? Here he has a place, out of all places, Huffington Post, to be able to yeah, talk. Yeah, that was unique. An evangelical viewpoint, at least his version, you know, mm-hmm. goes out. Yeah. Shouldn't Christians be more places like that? Well, I, they should be everywhere, sort of. Yeah. Like, I mean, he has some measure of respect, rather than being our own scrum, you know, mm-hmm. just all sort of. Yeah, too often I, I do find that Christians sort of end up preaching to the choir. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I wish they would get out and do something. Yeah. Well, ladies and gentlemen, get out do something like he suggests but we gotta go come back for tomorrow's trimmers or actually another special guest tomorrow mm-hmm. but until then we hope your future is always bright have a good day bye join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake 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 Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom going super quick trying to set a record bionic. Yeah, because we're in a hurry, but we've got our guest today, special guest Jeff Fenton, the founder of NashvilleChristian.com. He's going to tell you all about a new ministry opportunity here in Nashville, and then we'll be back to wrap it up here at Future Quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom, Mr. Unity. Bionic. There you go. <laughs> Spoiling. You always do. You always spoil where we're going. I, I, guests. I look at it as foreshadowing. Foreshadowing. Okay. Well, today, uh, we, you have just been foreshadowed about our guest today, which is Mr. Jeff Fenton, who is the founder of NashvilleChristian.com. And we're going to be talking about a, um, a new exciting ministry that he has started that um, obviously has direct implications to those in our immediate viewing audience here in the Middle Tennessee area, but uh, may have some implications uh, to those in the rest of our listening audience. And so, first of all, I just want to say, Mr. Fenton, I want to welcome you for your visit to Future Quake. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me on. Hey, by the way, uh, how long have you been aware been uh, uh, aware of the Future Quake phenomena? The future quake phenomena, um, Johnny the Longshoreman introduced me to probably uh-huh. oh uh, six months ago or so. Oh, really? Well, that that sort of puts you in a certain reputation then if you're hanging out That's with guys scary. like Johnny the Longshoreman. That does, but you know what? He's a good guy, and I really like him. You know, he's a lot like Kevin Bacon. There's only like six degrees of separation between anybody <laughs> and Johnny the Longshoreman. So uh, he's the culprit. He's he's sort of like Johnny the Appleseed as well, too. You know, except he's not a Swedenborgian, but other than that. 
uh, we'll give a call to him out there. Hey, the subject matter of our discussion today is your new NashvilleChristian.com web portal. Uh, and I think it's going to be of keen interest to our, our local listeners here, including those that listen on WENO uh, on our local station and on the web. Uh, but, but I want to I want to thank you for offering and providing on your own, without charge and voluntarily without our request, some time ago, a banner that you had put up and a link for Future Quake that you had put prominently on your site. Uh, and I just want to thank you so much for that. I know that's been up for some time, and you didn't ask anything at the time. Uh, right. But we are very grateful for that. We mm-hmm. appreciate, you know, steps like that can make a big difference in introducing people to what we're doing. Uh, plus, you risk your reputation greatly by associating <laughs> with people like us. I, I thought it lended me. I thought it lent me credibility, actually. But well, <laughs> heaven help that's us scary. all if that's where credibility comes. <laughs> hey, to, to begin with, can you tell us briefly about yourself and your background, and, and just just a minute or two of your Christian testimony? Sure. Um, I was raised in the church. Um, my dad was a minister. Um, didn't really know God. There was a lot of, uh, that's me, not my dad, but there was a lot of rules, religion, traditions is kind of what I was raised in. It wasn't a real spiritual upbringing. Um, at age 12, my parents got divorced and, and got really, I became a real angry child and really rebellious and, and got involved with a lot of substance abuse. Um, and by age 15, uh, I was in a really bad situation personally, kind of hit my own personal bottom at that time and just really cried out to the Lord. And it was uh, nothing religious about it, it nothing super spiritual about it. It was just, God, if you're real, just show yourself to me. Just hmm. reveal yourself to me and show me who you are. You know, I mean, I had, you know, people in, 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 in rehabilitation programs trying to show me this is God. I had people, you know, my 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 upbringing trying to tell me this, you know, God, you just show me who you are. I have no agenda here. And, uh, and really that was a time when, uh, I just really felt the peace of God come over me. And, and, and I wouldn't say that I immediately gave my life to the Lord at that point, but I started to really feel and sense his presence and know that he was real. And, uh, shortly thereafter, I got involved with a youth group where, um, the youth leaders, were really my first experience of the love of Christ through another person. And that impacted my life in a way to where, to this day, I still have a relationship with them. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it really, uh, and at, at that point, um, I gave my life to the Lord. And I really, uh, for the next year of my life, I really had the best year uh, for a long time to come, and I just experienced the peace, the joy of the Lord. I was on fire, and uh, and after that, I kind of stumbled back. I, I went, I, you know, I still was struggling with depression, and the doctors were trying to give me different drugs to try to help, you know, antidepressants and stuff, and some of them made me really tired, and I just struggled with a lot of stuff, and, and I started getting bored and, and flirting with substance abuse again, and I kind of, you know, spent the next decade after that bouncing between churches and full-blown addiction back and forth and uh and what kept drawing me back really were the memories of the peace and joy and love that i experienced during that one year it it almost i would almost say it haunted me i wanted it so bad but i couldn't reach it you know and and, and even when i would come back to church it was like i just I, i couldn't quite reach it again and i just would bounce back and forth um so that was a, a little bit of that part of the journey. About 16 years ago, I moved to Nashville, and two years later, God broke the chains of addiction forever and uh, and just totally freed me from that. 
And there's a whole story involved in that, and it's, it's really long and drawn out. But um, but that was really where my journey started for me. Um, it, it, you know, I still did some dumb things. I still drifted from the Lord in different seasons. But my struggles today aren't even in the same stratosphere as my struggles were once. Um, so uh, this past year, God has been challenging me more to um, kind of quit seeking life from institutionalized religion and instead to seek life from him. Um, I no longer kind of have a go-to guy at church to get all my answers from, and I did for a long time. I've had a lot of people really invest and sow into my life, and I've really, I've, I've been under a lot of great people, uh, great teachers, really loving shepherds, and I thank God for putting them in my life, and I still maintain relationships with them, but I just, they, they just aren't the voice of God to me anymore, like there was a time when they were, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. And, uh, so that's just, you know, that's kind of been my journey and kind of where I'm at now, and, uh, and, and that's uh, about all I got there. Um, okay. For, for well, that's <laughs> good. We, we 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 know you a lot better now, and 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 much of your testimony is common with many of our listeners, actually, uh, that we have. It's uh, it, it's something to do with your gener, you know, with the generation as well too. What's right. going on? What what made you decide to start NashvilleChristian.com, and Nashville. what do you hope to accomplish with it? Okay, NashvilleChristian.com had three primary inspirations. One of them was. Um, the greatest shepherd of my life named Jerry Bryant, the pastor, uh, former pastor of the Vineyard Christian Fellowship in Nashville. And, uh, and what I really loved and admired about Jerry was, um, if there was something great going on at the church down the street, he'd advertise it in the bulletin. He'd, he'd, he'd tell you about it from the pulpit and he wouldn't schedule anything the same day at his church. You know, his attitude was, was God is doing this down the street. I love you, and I want you to be a part of what God's doing. Go okay. do this with God, you okay. know. And I just, I had a tremendous respect for that. And to be honest, I haven't seen that very many places. But I just, it yeah. really, it really started a fire for me. So wanting. He, he wasn't parochial just to what was going on in his four walls, right? If if there were other things that the body of Christ, he has a he had a broad view of the body of Christ Absolutely. in things that they could contribute to people in his absolutely his congregation okay absolutely and i just really admired that um another another aspect of it was um i've always been a bit of a christian writer and there hasn't been very many avenues for really sharing my gift with the body and that was one of the real passions of this was wanting to i mean i've i've done websites before that were all about jeff come see everything that jeff has written and and, and even had a little bit of success with that but i wanted to create something where believers of all maturity levels and all skill levels could use whatever gifting God has given them to speak life to each other and to encourage each other in the body, you know, whether that be sharing poetry, whether that be writing an article, whether that's teaching a Bible study, whatever that is, um, you, you don't have to be one of the top five people on staff at the church to bring value to the body. So I wanted to help create a platform, just kind of a stage, if you will, for the community to sow into each other's lives. Um, and the third thing, right along with that, it was the parable of the talents just weighed really heavy on I me. Mean, and I kept hearing God over and over in different seasons tell me, so would I have given you, so would I have given you. And uh, and kind of my slogan uh, as of late is, is so it, don't stow it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so whatever God's given you, you know, 
contribute it to the body, use it to his glory. You know? and, and we live in a day and age with the Internet and with other tools we have at our disposal where you don't really need a lot of money, you don't need right. a whole lot of special access to be able right. to have a form by which to do something. A right. L- little bit of imagination is really all it takes. Can you tell us what all nationalchristian.com is supposed to be about, uh, yeah. what's on it, what are some of the features on the website right now? Yeah, I actually didn't completely finish your last question. With also with what we hope to accomplish with the website too is is just to um, to become a communication hub for the Nashville Christian community. Kind okay. Of crossing denominational lines, uh, our official mission statement is to help unify and build up the body of Christ in the greater Nashville area. And um, the challenge there is. How do you unify an entire city? And, uh, and it's my belief that just the first step to that is simply having a means of communication and sure. using it. And, and that's the exact purpose of the website. If you boiled it all down to, you know, one sentence, it would just be, you know, uh, just a communication structure, a hub of communication for the, the greater national area body of Christ. Um, the current features of the website, uh, the website has a built-in blogging platform uh, where with one click of the mouse, a, a user can easily set up their own blog. Um, the benefit of that over other blogging platforms is you have a community of like-minded people visiting the website each day outside your typical sphere of influence. It's not just me and my five or ten friends. It's a city that has a chance to, to, to really to take in what you're saying and, and to weigh in on it. Um, the forums uh, are, are topically organized to help you share your story, where you're at in your journey, um, to help people reach out to and encourage others on similar paths. Um, they're a great place for Christian book discussions, Bible studies, sharing your testimony. I would really love to see more people do that. Attesting to signs and wonders uh, that they have personally witnessed, uh, sharing poetry, articles, videos, songs. Um, and uh, it, we also have topical discussion forums for different stages of life, such as marriage, parenting, the joys and struggles of being single. Um, you know, additionally, uh, the website hosts groups where local Christian organizations or people with a common interest can collaborate and share information, uh, maintaining a presence on our website, either in a private, invitation-only, or public format. Uh, there's several podcast shows that have their own groups sharing their broadcasts through our website. Uh, with the community. The benefit for the community is having a centralized hub for finding relevant local information. The benefit for the organization is simply more exposure. Um, mm-hmm. The site has a lot of social networking features that you're accustomed to, such as member profiles, photo galleries, and friends. Uh, within the next week, we'll have a website upgrade completed with a full Facebook integration where you can log mm-hmm. in using your Facebook credentials uh, as well as share things on Facebook that you have posted or other people have posted on our site. I think that will help bridge some of the gap. Mm-hmm. Uh, another area where we've made a significant investment is in our local uh, Christian resource directory. In this area, we host a church directory featuring contact information, service time, senior pastors, an interactive map to each facility, links to church websites, podcasts, webcasts, and RSS feeds, a Christian media directory where in the podcast section you'll find a link to Future Quake. Some, <laughs> some other sections of our directory are for the Christian music industry and, and uh, local Christian businesses. Our goal with all this, again, is just to help connect our community with resources that we believe they will benefit from. And, and that, again, is the reason that we put the Future Quake banner on our site, because it, it is a local ministry that we believe our community will benefit from. You're glad to hear that. 
glad there's somebody <laughs> out there. Yeah. Yes, glad we got one of those emails. You, you, so, so in other words, if somebody's out there and wants to do a conference, Christian conference here in this area, uh-huh. they can go there and post it on your website, and yeah, it's right. a portal for everyone in town to go see it. Um, yeah. if, if there's a music concert that's going on, they go to your site. It's where they can, can do it. Um, if somebody has an opinion or perspective on something, it is a place uh-huh. where they can write and get the opinions and feedback from other people. Right. On- it's, it's, the, our golden rule is that the content build up the body of Christ. That's, that's our only golden rule. It's not mm-hmm. a place for bickering. It's not a place for criticizing. It's, 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 it's a place for sowing and encouraging and loving and, uh, you know, there's plenty of things that divide us. There's, you know, plenty of forums for division, but this is really, um, a place to lay down our differences and, and encourage each other in what we have in common, which is Jesus Christ. And, and people can meet people that they would never meet. Right. Because they're not sitting in the same local church Absolutely. that may have common interest. They may right. learn something from somebody who's actually sitting in a different denomination, maybe a different right. part of the body. They can actually learn from part of their wisdom. Uh, right. It's a way to be exposed and be enlightened about the breadth of the body of Christ in a way right. that they wouldn't know otherwise. Right. I'd love to see a lot of a lot more exposure too for a lot of little grassroots things where. You know, if if you aren't a friend of a friend of a friend, the guy that started it, you don't know anything about it. You right. know, and there's a lot right. of things that I think would really there's a lot of there's a demographic for that, but it's not all in one cluster. And we just have a hard time connecting the dots. And mm-hmm. there's a, a huge amount of Christian ministries in, in the in the greater Nashville area, but again, um, you know, I, I just really see potential <laughs> mm-hmm. for a, a centralized means of communicating. Well, I tell you, I, my mind just runs on the things you can do with this. I mean, I think you really ought to be hosting your own podcast, just yeah. in, interviewing yeah. some of these people linked to your website, which actually, you know, profiles these different ministries where you talk to them and archive these interviews with people and get late-breaking news announcements, yeah. and, and even a place where maybe people could call in and discuss, where people yeah. aren't just reading things in print, but they can hear each other uh, out loud and talking, you know, and and maybe, you know, talk shoe or some of these other forms they have where people can can actually, you know, it, at least it's a step until they get to see each other face-to-face. And thank goodness right. there's a geographical connection here where people meet each other there at your site. Then they can go right. look up each other and say, oh, I didn't know you had an interest in that. Because I could see all sorts of specialty topic, uh, people who are interested in human or civil rights in the Christian body, or people are interested uh-huh. in Bible prophecy, people interested in, in different issues that are important to them could also find a place there too to meet other right. kindred spirits. Now, you know, well, you let, mentioned, let, let, me, let me just say that if, if if there's anybody listening right now that has a passion to do that, I am more than willing to host <laughs> something like that. I am yeah. more than willing to give server space and handle the programming. The thing I have to be careful about is um, taking on things that I don't have the grace or the time to do just myself. And, and it's, that's really been some of my challenge in this. Yeah. Is I want to do so much and and it dilutes my ability to do other things that I really know I'm supposed to be doing. But I am all for, you know, the community. I mean, this is this is not my baby. This is something that I'm primarily doing most of the work for right now. But anybody that wants to partner in this, be a part of this, has a taste for this, welcome. Jump on board. Let's go. Now, now how long have you officially been online? So when, what day did you start? 
Um, officially, this website, this version of the website went up in uh, sometime in 2007. Um, wow. I okay. Tri- I tr- yeah, I tried doing something, actually. I actually registered the domain name about 10 years ago um, uh-huh. and tried to do a little something that was actually a fax list of events originally. So oh, we had okay. about uh-huh. 100 churches we would fax events to, but we really didn't have the software at that time for much of a web presence that really – so the, the 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 evolution of software has put a lot of things within our reach that just previously weren't. Mm-hmm, and multimedia. So so right. you you've been online since 2007. What kind of feedback have you gotten from visitors online to your site? Um, uh, any kind of track record or things like that? Other experiences? The feedback. Uh, the challenge. I think there's a few challenges with the site. One is. Um, we're offering something to the public that they've never had before and don't know that they have a need for. So I think it's a challenge getting people to think outside the box of kind of what we've done before. Um, and the other challenge I've had just technologically has been um, has been trying to. I mean, for example, I have I have some grandmas that write some great uh, blog posts on the site, but I got to go to their house and show them how to use the website. <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, I... technologically, it's just it's it's a uh, it's a stretch for them. You know, yeah. and a lot of people are familiar with Facebook. That's another right. challenge. Is so many people meet so much of their social networking needs through Facebook, they don't see the value in trying another platform. And we're hoping that the you know the Facebook integration will close some of that gap for us. Mm-hmm. But um, but that, those have been, you know, some of our challenges is 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 just really making the convincing the public that you know this is a value and this is something that you can participate in, and also helping them not just see it as what what can I go there and get, but what what's the potential of this thing? What yeah. could we help this thing become? You know, mm-hmm. because if you're just looking for what you know, I and my own strength have posted, you're going to get real bored real quick. But what right. can you bring to the game, and what can right. we make this together? You know? Right. It's meant it's meant to be something like you said. You bring something they will let us take. Right. Um. Well, you you, you allude to what it can be. Come. What is your vision for the future of, of NashvilleChristian.com? What do you want it to evolve into? My my hope is that this website will become an active, living, vibrant expression of encouragement and love within our community, connecting people and ministries throughout our city. Uh, I see it as a strategic network connecting the dots between supply and demand, giftedness, availability, and need, power, and purpose. Uh, we've already purchased the software to add a free photo classified section for our city, which I hope to have implemented within the next month. Uh, another thing that's on my heart is hosting a free resource library of dynamite, absolutely life-changing testimonies and teachings. Um, I have no desire just to host a bunch of stuff, but I really want things that have impacted me and that I really think can impact other people. I used to run the tape ministry for the Vineyard Nashville and have some great oh. recordings by Mike McIntosh, Bob Coy, John Wimber, Bill Hybels, John Ortberg, Andy yeah. Reese. And uh, we've already had a couple of national teachers give us their blessing to share their work, but this wow. will probably take take another year or so to, to get cranking. Well, as you know, we've um, got a lot of our audience, obviously, here through WNO locally, but then we also have a very big audience nationally and internationally. Uh, who may be wondering, hey, how does this impact me? Could you envision the same kind of, this same kind of model or activity going on in other cities as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that, uh, 
I mean, one of my real goals with this is kind of to get online, to get offline, to kind of get online, to connect to community people. That's why I don't want to go national with this. I don't want to try to do something bigger than Nashville myself personally because this is where I live. This is kind of where my reach is. This is kind of where my family is. This is my community. I think it would be a wonderful thing for other people in other communities to do the same thing, to try to kind of get online, to connect the dots of different ministries and people in their community, to get offline and have relationships and go, you know, go do worship together and to live, you know, live life lives together outside the box of just our island, our little church. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's not easy. You know, I think that anybody getting into this really has to feel it's something they're called to do because I think that it's challenging. It's outside the box. People mm-hmm. don't just people don't just knock your door down because they're so excited you have this new idea. And uh, so they have to have, you know, they have to have a little bit of thick skin and they have to have... Right. Uh, but another thing I would just recommend for somebody that wants to do this from scratch would be going with something like Ning or a software solution that is kind of hosted and managed um, on a, on another site. To look. The, the software we're using um, has been really challenging and taken a lot of time. And I think that, mm-hmm. you know, just with what I've seen in the past, you know, couple of years with some of this other stuff, uh, like Ning, if I was to start it all over again, I think I would go in a direction like that because you could spend more of your time doing the things you feel called to do as opposed to programming. <laughs> right. Well, you know how these ministries go when you start something. It sounds very exciting at the beginning, but right. then you suddenly realize it's like having a baby. It right. requires <laughs> constant attention. You know, right. it, it, it doesn't just look cute over in the crib. You've actually got to feed it and change a diaper and all that kind of stuff. And you do the same thing metaphorically with a ministry like what you're doing. And that's what people don't see behind the scenes is yeah. all the, the drudgery, the work that's involved. You know, there's a whole lot of that with the Future Quake show. As primitive as it sounds, we actually have to do some, you know, some editing, packaging the shows, this kind of stuff right. like that. And that's the stuff people don't appreciate. But to, to me, I see two major opportunities for, for people here locally with what you have. One is it is a place where they can go find out if there's a, a conference if there's somebody speaking, if there's people of common interest, even music, whatever it is, it's a place they know to go to that they can go uh, coming up to a weekend and they want to see what's going on somewhere. And also for the brave people in the body who want to go hear something that's a little bit of a stretch for them, mm-hmm. uh, they can find something to, to, to stretch them a little bit with some other people, part of the body, to, right. to explore it. And it can be sort of an adventure. Uh, right. for them to be able to meet some people who come from a little different experience and to learn from them and vice versa. And then the other side of it, you've got people who have something to say, have something to contribute. And right. if I understand it, you're really offering them a forum to right. reach out to the entire city. Absolutely. I'm saying please come share it. I'm saying your val- your Everyone has a story, you know. Share your story. Testify to what God has mm-hmm. really done in your life, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? So many times people have healings or something that, you know, is not, I mean, yeah. it's not like cancer. It's something smaller. And a week later, you're saying, is that really God? You know, I mean, yeah. you need to share and testify what God really does in your life. It will build mm-hmm. up other people's faith. It will encourage sure. us all, you know. Sure, sure. Well, I'll tell you what, we, we've come up to the end already. That's gone by so quickly. But I want to ask uh, to make sure people understand how can listeners plug into your website uh, use the tool of resources and support your efforts in ministry in return. Register at the website, NashvilleChristian.com. It's free. There's no charge for anything. And jump in with both feet. Come with an attitude of speaking life and sharing your gifts to build up the body. 
Uh, the biggest misconception we're struggling with right now is people view our website as a local Christian content provider and want to sit on the receiving end. And this yeah. website is not a spectator sport. Mm-hmm. It is an opportunity to participate in community in ways which we never have before. Mm-hmm. Our hope is that you'll see it as a communication network and come communicate uh, and just look for what don't look for what you can get from the community, but right. for what you can bring to the community. Well, and I want to challenge our listeners. Uh, they could go there and actually create a uh, a group just to criticize uh, the content on the Future Quake show. That ought to drive a lot of people Funny just to just to give their two cents in, and maybe a support group for people traumatized by the Future Quake. <laughs> support group even yeah, better. Be a good place. I want to thank you so much, Jeff, for joining us. Would you keep us posted, particularly if there's something really intriguing that's very Future Quakeish going okay. on in town, to give us a heads up, and we'll make the announcement here. And uh, we'll pass on the word to our crowd. And uh, we just so appreciate you, one, being a portal yourself to let people come to Future Quake and uh, joining us tonight for this discussion. Absolutely. I do want to throw out there, too, that uh, Johnny the Longshoreman started a French Christian talk show group already on NashvilleChristian.com. So if anybody wants to jump in there and weigh in on any of that stuff, please feel free. Well, I consider that a warning, if anything. But <laughs> yeah. we, we, we love our buddy out there. <laughs> hey, God bless you, Jeff. You take care All right, of yourself. Well, okay? thanks a lot for having me on, guys. Okay, yeah. thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And Tom Fast Bionic. And Merb needs to tell you how to contact us at Future Quake. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or Internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, we got to go. All right, bye. Come back tomorrow for tomorrow's Tremors. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Ciao. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. Quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I, of course, am Tom. Middle name withheld, Bionic. Oh, no, they've gotten to you now, haven't they? <laughs> I, I had to say it. I work for the NSA now. I mean, We knew it. Yeah. All of those emails suspected it, and I refused to believe it. It's no wonder our, our phone phones never work and connect, yeah. connect correctly now, you know. That's, that's why. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's great to be back with you for another uh, Future Quake show. Uh, it feels a little different for us. Uh, today it feels amazing we have had a major upgrade to future quake studios not so much that you all can notice in the audience but we're still the same uh, incompetent primitive people we always were but uh made a few tiny cosmetic changes here to actually have a table the tile and the gold leaf is nice i gotta say yeah well you know what buying that uh, using the future quake funds to buy that gold mine in liberia has really Mm -hmm. paid off uh, proceeds from that have really helped. So well, there you go. Anyway, we got you a little bit Pat more. Pat Robertson, I guess, or we, he was in the diamonds, though. What was it? I thought it was gold. It Maybe might have been it was gold. Diamonds. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's what I was alluding to. Okay. 
But yeah. uh, anyway, it looks like we're more like big people now, having a table and some nice chairs. They're like and sitting on the floor. And mm-hmm. I know. It's, yeah. it's, of course, you know, we don't want to pop that uh, vision of people of the uh, future quake, uh, you know, facilities here in the rotunda mm-hmm. and the yeah. visitor well, center and everything else. So Sometimes you just got to go with it. Well, know? speaking of going with it, would you like me to start with a story here? Please do. Uh, this is something that has a, a local flavor related to what's going on in the news. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, the big thing in the news has been about people really, really wanting to get a chance to burn Qurans if they, if they had a chance yeah. to do it, just looking for an opportunity. Well, you know, many of them were talked out of it and backed down, but I'm proud to say in our own community in Springfield, Tennessee, um, uh, right between where we're sitting right now and I guess your regular digs, right? Mm-hmm. Up in that stone's throw from here. Uh, they were able to accomplish that mission. So they were able to burn some Qurans right here in the buckle mm. of the Bible Belt. Well, I mean... It says they follow through with plans. Wow. So they're so they're into putting American servicemen at risk? Well, or? let me read this. Okay. It's just a couple paragraphs here out of our local, local uh, television news. Mm-hmm. Uh, despite multiple pleas to reconsider, two local religious leaders held a private Quran burning in a Springfield backyard Saturday afternoon. The Reverend Bob Old and the Reverend Danny Allen both had different reasons for burning the Muslim holy book, but they said it had nothing to do with whether or not a mosque was built near Ground Zero. Now, here's their argument. It's about faith. It's about love. But you have to have the right book behind you. This is a book of hate, not a book of love, said Old while holding up a Quran. The two men said they burned the books to defend the United States Constitution and the American people. Uh, it's a move that has been renounced by Christian groups, politicians, and even some of their family members. Now, three women who have uh, have loved ones fighting abroad stood outside of Old's home holding up signs to protest the burnings. Somebody's got to stand up for the troops, said Ashley Parsons. Parsons' husband is fighting in Afghanistan. This is his fifth tour of duty. She said she thinks it is shameful someone would take the anniversary of a national tragedy and do something that both the president and military leaders have said could endanger troops fighting abroad. I was livid, Parsons said. I was very angry. I was very angry, and I'm scared. I'm scared for my husband. I'm scared for my friends and everybody who protects us. Hmm. Well, uh, I'm not sure... So, so what were their reasons, stated reasons again? Well, it's very clear, and it should be obvious to you. It says here that they burned the books to defend the United States Constitution and the American people. So the, somebody was going it's to like, roll the Constitution up inside said Koran? Well, you know our founding fathers, they always said the best way to defend the Constitution is to burn books. You know? yeah. Burning books is something our founding fathers were strongly behind. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's in the Bill of Rights. Uh, yeah, that's like the 11th Amendment. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Actually, you know, they have a right to burn books. They can burn them. You and I can go grab some books out of the office here and burn that's them all fine. day. Um, Fundamentals of physics is going up in smoke mm-hmm. later. And, and they also have the right to believe that burning books somehow is something that pleases God. Sure. Of course. Um I don't know if that's a good idea, but I mean... We also have a right here on the show. Um, well, we have a right. We don't always have a right on the show, but if if uh, the powers that be let us use this forum mm-hmm. uh, to do it, we have a right also to give our opinions about how whether burning books is a reflection of what Jesus Christ would do or not. Well... Now, have you heard um, some explanations from some friends of yours that, well, it's just like in the book of Acts where they burned the books of sorcery... 
Well, I have heard people mention that, but that, of course, takes that whole verse in that uh, the key to Bible, Bible interpretation, at least at least in my eyes, is really the context of the paragraph and what's going on yeah, around right. the, the verse. You know. And how do you see that's different in that text? In that well, text? of course, those people were willing participants. They had already been set free and were in the kingdom of God. And uh, this is just, this is, this is, it wasn't a political statement, I don't mm-hmm. believe. You know, it's not like, you know, they got those, those uh, sorcery books from the Caesar right. and the local magistrate and were now throwing them in the fire to protect the, um, you know, some political mm-hmm. uh, machine. So, right. uh, I mean, that, there doesn't seem to be really that much of a parallel, at least to me. Right. Well, you know... Um, the, the way I heard it described, which is similar to how I sort of see it from a pastor that we know, one of mm-hmm. our local pastors, said that in, in the book of Acts, these people were making this a personal matter to show what they had come out of themselves. That they were distancing themselves from something that had a sway over them mm-hmm. and a personal impact in their own life, and they were getting rid of it out of their life and making a break in their own personal life. Mm-hmm. That is very, very different than making a personal statement uh, I mean, a political statement, excuse me, a political statement versus a personal one out of burning books of an ideology. Sure, uh, totally. It's night and day. You know. Um, I mean, has, have people used the, uh, I believe it's Acts, do I want to say it's Acts 19, that, that passage? Nah, I'm trying to remember, that yeah. may sound about right. Yep. It's right after he went in Ephesus and mm-hmm. the Temple yeah. of Diana people went after him. Yeah, yeah. Um, have, have people used that? That is a proof text to to burn Koran. That's been used in the, I've read it in articles. That's okay. been used is the reason why they're doing it. So yeah. you know they may burn, they may build a wicker man and certainly put well some I mean it's certainly it it's certainly bad one. biblical you know exegesis. Yeah, uh, those are the days we're living in right yeah. now. I you know what I even tried to find out if Ray Bradbury. Was still able to do interviews. <laughs> yeah, Seriously, get him on for four, Fahrenheit 451. That's exactly right because that's what we're facing as a Fahrenheit 451 environment right now. Sure. And you know what? Dominionists are going to take future quake shows and burn them one day. Sure. When they're in power, tossing DVDs in the fire. You no, know, if the people who've listened already haven't burned them, new stories. They may have burned them already. But, yeah. But uh, seriously, uh, when you see this happen in one segment, you know, against extremists. I'm preaching to the choir to you, mm-hmm. but uh, what goes around comes around. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you know, it, it seems to me like Romans makes an interesting statement where he says, where where Paul seems to clearly put the sin of the Israelites when Moses went up on the hill mm-hmm. on the mountain to talk to God. Uh, he puts he puts the sin that was in their heart first, and then seems to indicate that God gave them over for those to those things. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, now that we see people burning stuff openly, I mean, perhaps this is just, um, you know, where it's like, well, we don't no longer care for justice and mm-hmm. mercy and uh, uh, righteousness. Do you think it'd be hard for those two preachers who did that to go call up a Muslim that same day and say, let me talk to you about the love of Jesus? Yes. And about I mean, how much Jesus loves you and cares I don't, about you. I mean, you. I don't know them very well or at all. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a shoot from the hip statement, but I don't mm-hmm. think that... I certainly don't think they could go up and out, go out and evangelize a, a Muslim. You know, one one example I have is the when Paul went out to Athens, mm-hmm. it was another pagan belief system that was there. He went and made a commentary about their belief, and then 
talked about the unknown God that was there. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember him really saying, you guys are going to burn in hell. How have you guys been doing such evil things all this time? That's Acts 20, 29 <laughs> and a half. Yeah. But he, you know, he, he, he went in and said, uh, you know, you seek to try to understand God. Working from their understanding of this unknown God, he used their understanding, their, their limited amount of truth that they had, and he expanded on their own limited amount of truth they accepted to be able to express Christ to them. And a number of them believed mm-hmm. because he did that. Not because he came in and said, you all are all just a bunch of devil worshippers. You're well, going down. His, that's it. On his first missionary journeys, there was the last one where he did it in a tank <laughs> and won Abrams. You know? oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, uh, one of our friends here, when he talked about Jesus carrying a gun, uh-huh. they were afraid that you had, like, gone, you know, totally pacifist and not using anything. So. Yeah. That was interesting. Um, friend, a friend of the show, or friend of the show, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, he did. I mean, it's just it's it's in the fifth gospel. Yeah, you know? but but you know what? He, he he built on the truth. In fact, he even referenced their own philosophers. He says, you know, as your own philosophers have said, mm-hmm. and he sure. used that as a bridge to mm-hmm. connect them to the revelation of Jesus Christ. And people won't do that often with the with you know reaching the people Muslim faith, except people like Carl Madaris we have on, mm-hmm. who will build on their respect for Jesus Christ as a great prophet. Yeah, I've seen that with uh, Brother Sammy uh, Sammy mm-hmm. Tanaga as mm-hmm. well. Right. You know? They will use. In fact, they'll take a Quran and go through the Quran and show everywhere where it shows they that the Bible is highly regarded mm-hmm. and that the Bible is trustworthy, which is counter to what. The later imams taught later that went away, mm-hmm. and, and exactly. use that as a springboard to, to preach Christ to them. Mm-hmm. And of course, all that sounds so foreign to our ears here, American evangelicals, because you know we're even confused on who they think Allah is and all that other kind of stuff mm-hmm. like that too. And that's why some of the shows we do are very controversial. But anyway, sorry, I don't mean to beat that down, but this is yeah. a timely yeah, I think thing, even though so. it was a small nugget and it tied directly here. Yeah. You have an incredibly important article that blew me away when you told me about yeah. it. So yeah. I want you to jump into that. <clears throat> I will. Uh, Untangling the bizarre CI links to the Ground Zero Mosque. We can't get away from this stuff, can we? I mean, but it's it's the main uh, story. Yeah, it's it's a big story. What's going on? Uh, This is via the New York New York Observer uh, by Mark. I believe his name is Ames. Ames. So far, the debate over the proposed Islamic Center near Ground Zero has unfolded along predictable lines, with the man at the center of the project, Imam Faisal Abdul Rauf. Uh, drawing attacks from the right, painting him as a terrorist sympathizer with ties to Hamas and the Muslim Brotherhood. But meanwhile, links between the group behind the controversial mosque, the CIA, and U.S. military establishment have gone unacknowledged. Uh, for instance, one of the early... Say that again. Between who? His connections uh, to who? But meanwhile, links between the group uh, links between the group behind the controversial mosque, the CIA and U.S. military establishment have gone unacknowledged. So you're going to tell us that the CIA and military establishment also have connections to this mysterious... Uh, yeah, apparently so, through a gentleman uh, named R. Leslie Deke. Well, yeah. I just I just saw tonight on Fox News before we came in that they were mentioning the connections this imam has to someone who believes in 911 truther. Yeah. You know, question about what happened to 911. And that was the big dirt on the guy. That was the big scandalous thing. Mm-hmm. If somebody questioned the, the events of 911. Mm-hmm. So you're going to tell us something else here about something yeah. more home connected here on the home front. For instance, one of the earliest backers of the nonprofit group, the Cordur- Cordoba Initiative, that is spearheading the Ground Zero Mosque, is a 52 year old Scarsdale, New York native named R. Leslie Deke. 
In addition to serving on the group's board of advisors since its founding in 2004 by Imam Faisal Abdul Rauf, Deek was its principal funder, donating $98,000 to the nonprofit between 2006 and 2008. This figure appears to represent the, to represent the organization's total operating budget. Uh, though oddly, the group reported receipts of just a third of that total during the same time period. So we have this gentleman, R. Leslie Deek, giving basically the whole operating budget to the Cordoba Initiative. Uh, Deek describes himself as a practicing Muslim with a, with background in Christianity and Judaism, with in-depth personal and business experiences in the Middle East, living and working six months per year in Egypt. Born into a Christian home, Deke became an Orthodox Jew and married a Jewish woman before converting to Islam when he married his current wife, Mashura Solomon, uh, with whom he now lives in Rye. Uh, Leslie Deke's resume also notes his, his role as business consultant for Patriot Defense Group, LLC, a private defense contractor with offices in Winter Park, Florida, and in Tucson. The only names listed on the firm's website are those of its three strategic advisors. These include a retired four-star general, General Brian Doug Brown, commander of the U.S. Special Operations Command until 2007, where he headed all special operations forces, both active duty and reserve, leading the global war on terrorism. Now, he's connected to the man connected to the new mosque who was leading special forces for a global war on terror. Yeah, they, he Leslie Deke, uh, who contributed basically the organization's entire operating budget, uh, also works for a company... Uh, that doesn't list its uh, well. It doesn't list all of the people who are on the board, but it only of the people it does list. Uh, it, it lists General Brian Doug Brown, uh, who was the commander of the U.S. Operation Special Command. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, basically all special forces, as you said. Um, and, yeah. So, uh, and James Pavitt, former deputy director for operations at the Central Intelligence Agency. Um, so again. Uh, a deputy director for the operations of Central Intelligence, uh, where he managed the CIA's globally deployed personnel and nearly half of its multi-billion-dollar budget, and served as head of America's clandestine service, the CIA's April operational response to the attacks of September 11, 2001. Um, so that's an interesting connection. The article continues. Mm -hmm. Besides Pavitt Brown and a third advisor. Banker Alexander Capello, the Patriot Defense Group, is so secretive it doesn't even man name its management team, instead describing its anonymous CEO as a former Special Forces and State Department veteran, the group's managing director as a former CIA officer experienced in counterterrorism hostile environments, and the group's corporate intelligence head as a 23-year-old veteran of the U.S. Secret Service who worked on the personal security details of former Presidents Bush and Clinton. Patriot Defense Group's primary business involves leveraging its government contacts and know -how, connections and know-how. The firm is divided into two divisions, one that focuses exclusively on the needs of the U.S. military and law enforcement communities, as well as the requirements of friendly foreign governments, uh, and a corporate division, which provides business intelligence and specialized security services to corporate clients and high-net-worth family enterprises. Um, Inter interesting. I've always, I, I was always intrigued by the high net worth family enter mm -hmm. enterprises. Uh, so to recap, from 2006 to 2008, R. Leslie Deke worked as a business consultant, quote unquote, to those super secretive security contractors uh, with ties to the CIA and counterterrorism forces. And in those same three years, he also donated nearly $100,000 in seed money to the foundation now advocating the construction of the so-called Ground Zero Mosque. 
Interestingly, during the same three-year period during which the Deke family this Foundation... This doesn't sound like the people that I have been led to believe that were the, like the far Islamic extremist radical elements overseas. No, that well, that, that's come this. up numerous times in conversations with people. Um, and, and when I was... Uh, yeah. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Uh, it's true. Uh, talking with, to people about this, they've always said, we need to see where the money's coming from. Mm-hmm. And they would say, I'll bet it's coming from Saudi Arabia. Well, it turns out it's coming from uh, uh, this defense contractor with ties to, you know, private contracting and the CIA and the NSA and uh, a whole bunch of other acronyms, government acronyms. Um, interestingly, during the same three-year period during which the Deke Family Foundation was financing the Cordoba Initiative, Deke also donated a total of $101,247 to something called the National Defense University Foundation. The National Defense University is a network of war and strategy colleges and research centers, including the National War College, funded by the Pentagon, uh, designed to train specialists in military strategy. The organization recently announced a November 5th dinner gala in honor of Defense Secretary and former CIA Chief Robert Gates. Sponsored included Northrop Grumman, Boeing, Lockheed Martin, and the Patriot Defense Group. Uh, Deke also sits on the NDUF Board of Directors. The chairman. So wait, the Patriot Defense Group has connections to supporting this mosque. Yes. Ground Zero. The Patriot Defense Group, uh, as well as Deke, does. So, um, yeah. Uh, Deke also sits on the NDUF's Board of Directors, the chairman of which is Mark Traynor, uh, the former general counsel for Wachovia Bank from 90, 1998 through its collapse in 2008 and a major bundler of campaign donations for the McCain-Palin ticket in 2008. Wachovia, now owned by Wells Fargo, was recently fined $160 million for laundering at least $110 million in Mexican drug money between 2003 and 2008, while Trainer was Wachovia's general counsel. Though the future is likely uh, higher since Wachovia admitted it didn't put any controls on at least $420 billion that's billion, and cash moved through its network of Mexico currency exchanges. Um, Which leads to another odd coincidence. Laundering money for drug lords is what brought down Deke and company, the company run by Leslie Deke's father, Nicholas This just gets better and better, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, To Leslie Deke's father, Nicholas Deke, years ago. The elder Deke, a former top intelligence commander during World War II for the OSS, the forerunner to the CIA, was the founder of Deke Pereira, which became for a time one of the world's biggest foreign currency and gold dealers. But in 1984, a presidential commission on organized crime accused the firm of acting as a money laundering operation for Colombian drug cartels, who reportedly brought sacks of cash containing tens of millions of dollars into Deke's Manhattan offices. By the end of 1984, Deke and company had declared bankruptcy, and a year later, Nicholas Deke was murdered in the company's headquarters at 29 Broadway by a deranged homeless woman. Um, after the firm went bankrupt and Leslie Deke was left on his own, the corporation was broken up and sold off in pieces. One company that traces its beginning to the defunct Deke empire is Gold Line International, a business concern <laughs> well known to fans of Glenn Beck as well as, a, as well as California investigators. Gold Line is to Glenn Beck what General, General Electric was to Ronald Reagan. Mm-hmm. The company sponsors Beck's TV and radio shows, as well as his touring act. He's got a touring act? Oh, yeah. And and Beck is its public face. Touring act. The Los Angeles Country District... An act is the key word for it. uh, Apparently so. 
The Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office, along with the Santa Monica City Attorney's Office, are currently investigating Goldline for defrauding customers by railroading gullible customers, gullible customers into buying their most debased products. Um, how are we doing on time? Are we doing okay? Uh, yeah, just there's, keep, the, there's some, the, the article goes on for another page, and it just gets mm-hmm. crazier. Speaking of Glenn Beck, it has been reported that Saudi Prince Al-Walid bin Talal, the second largest shareholder in News Corp., the parent company of Fox News. Wait a second. You're saying a Saudi Arabian, is it a prince? Prince, yes. Um, these are the people that are understood to fund the 911 event, supposedly. Like the the uh, the attackers. They were Saudi Arabian, overwhelmingly, yes. right? Yeah. And they're the main funder for Fox News? Yes, Apparently, uh, okay. uh, well, he's the second largest shell. Second share, largest whole share, shareholder. Sorry, okay, yep. I'm sorry. The parent company, Fox News, which airs Beck's program, is also a major funder for uh, Imam Roth's projects. So there you go. There's another Fox News uh, tie-in with uh, with the people, you know, giving the money. Uh, anyway, as John Stewart viewers heard all about last week, is interesting. I see more. I meet more people who say that. They get all their news from John Stewart. Well, they they say for young people mm-hmm. that is particularly true. Of course, you know he's going to have his own slant on certain things too. Sure, uh, you know they're going to have issue with. Mm-hmm. But at least there's other voices. Yeah, um, yeah. Right, we could get into an interesting conversation about that. Yeah. But I'll, in the interest of time, I'll continue. Coincidences happen, of course. For instance. Pamela Geller, the blogger who's been the leading voice denouncing the Mosque Project, was once, bizarrely enough, associate publisher of the New York Observer. But add to this the array of unexpected connections the work of Imam Roth on behalf of the U.S. government, which includes serving as an FBI consultant, read informant, and being recruited as a spokesman by longtime George W. Bush confidant Karen Hughes, who headed up the administration's propaganda efforts in the Muslim world, and a compelling picture begins to emerge. Bush's favorite imam, with backing from a funder with connections to the CIA, the Pentagon, and the currency trading company that now sponsors right-wing firebrand Glenn Beck, proposes to build a mosque around the corner from the site of the most devastating terrorist attack ever visited on America in the name of uh, cultivating understanding among all religions and cultures. He puts forth a project that offends a majority of Americans and deals a significant setback to the broader acceptance of Muslim Americans. Uh, it's a little like Billy, quote-unquote, White Shoes Johnson, claiming the only reason he moonwalks after scoring a touchdown is to lower tensions on the football field and raise the, te- the other team's spirits. Right. <laughs> that was a good analogy. Mm-hmm. Whether the Cordoba Initiative ever gets its way with the, with the Ground Zero Mosque, it may well have, have a lasting legacy at odds with its stated intention by damaging the very moderates and progressives who actually view New York and the nation as a whole as a tolerant melting pot and strengthening the position demagogues uh, the position demagogues on both sides. It will almost certainly deal a setback to interfaith relationships. It will also help to hobble the Democratic Party, uh, which just just might have been the point all along. Well, I don't know if I go that far. I'd yeah. say a little bit more. Yeah, there may be a little of the bias of the uh, author there. Yep. By the way, I don't know if you mentioned the the uh, source for this article, which we should always do. It's a New York Observer, isn't it? Which is a New York newspaper. Yes. Okay. It's New York. Uh, okay. I believe it's a daily news newspaper. Okay. Um, either either that, or it's merely a coincidence that this controversy has erupted now during crucial midterm elections, uh, in which we can all go back to what we were doing before: either denouncing the Park 51 Mosque as an affront to Americans, 
or championing it as a symbol of our fundamental right to playing uh, our accustomed roles in a drama that seems too perfect somehow to believe. You, you, you know, the commentary and analysis that the writer does is really irrelevant. Yeah. It's the, the facts that are, that, that are what the bombshell in this article. Yeah. And, and you know, if, if there was ever one story that included just about almost everything that we talk about in Future Quake mm-hmm. and the players, with the exception of maybe the Nephilim, mm-hmm. that was it. That story had all the key players. And I'm going to put a hypothesis out there, and that's all it is. I want to make sure it's very clear. But mm-hmm. and this is going to be obvious to most of our listeners. But you think the fact that you've got special forces people leading the war on terror, key Pentagon people that make money from the war on terror, You've got Glenn Beck, who's making big money now, building up this big clash. Mm -hmm. Fox News, all these other ones have, and their supporters all have connections. The the main people leading the charge against this mosque are the ones whose whose supporters and bankrollers are the ones actually funding the mosque. Mm -hmm. To me, if this doesn't give any discerning person a feel how clearly we're being had, as a people in America, this story right now. I mean, there's a little bit of conjecture there, but not much. I would I mean, say basically, you know, yeah. if you assume the odds, statistical odds, mm-hmm. there is a there's a big con going on the American people right now. Of course, the Christians are falling for it more than anyone. Perhaps. But the people who are preaching against all this kind of stuff now, we've been caught red hand funding it all for their own financial benefits, mm-hmm. for their power benefits. Uh, whatever kind of thing that they have, whether it's defense sales, whether it's ratings and the money in media or whatever like that, it looks to me more and more obvious. Merv, would you tell our listeners how to contact us at Future Quake? Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Come back next week for another great interview. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake.